Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other thing that we happen to come up with. Uh, whether you're a, a geek, a, a fan, a casual observer of the spirits industry, or someone that's just floating through this channel, I hope you find what we're going to talk about today interesting. Uh, if you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. I can be found on just about any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me there, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com. And I'll get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes uh, whenever we happen to do them. Tonight, it happens to be 6 p.m. Central. Um, and we're talking through uh, and with uh, a, a pretty interesting guy. Uh, we're going to be talking with Michael. Uh, Michael, and I didn't, I already failed completely miserably. Did not ask how to pronounce your last name. So I'm not going to try to slaughter it. I'll give you the chance to... To, to tell me what, however, to pronounce your last name. It's not a thing that I, I know right off the top of my head, but you are from the Drinking and Knowing Things website, book, and just like any other fun thing that a human being can imagine, it sort of feels like you're you're a part of that. So um, I'll let you kind of do a little quick intro of who you are. Awesome. Um, so last name is pronounced Jergens, like the lotion. Okay. Uh, but it does have an extra vowel in it. So, you know, I get... In Southern California, where where I'm from, um, you know, I get Wergens uh -huh. because that's the, the Mexican pronunciation. I also get Jurgens in Europe because that's the European pronunciation. But it's that's it's the route Jer I was going to. I was I was I was like, man, this this might be really Germanic. I work with some folks uh, in Western Europe, and I'm like, this might be Jurgens, so I'm not gonna try. <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard it all. It's and I I think you know when when the family came over initially, it was. J-U with the umlaut, and they mm -hmm. said, oh, this is too hard for the Americans, so they made it J-U-E, and that made it even worse. So. Right. Well, I mean, it is too hard for the Americans. You're not, you're not wrong there. We need straightforward things. That, you know, my, my last name is Hughes, and that's a pretty easy one to come up with. You know, John Hughes, if you've ever watched a movie from the 80s, the name makes sense. Yeah. But we've been called everything from Huges to Huggies to Hugs. It's, you know, just names are not a, not, names are not a forte, I guess, for, for a lot of people. Yeah. And then, of course, um, my pen name, uh, Michael Aim, and I use my middle name um, for all the books that I write. So, so yeah, so you're, you're an author, you're a published author, and, and I, have, I have a friend who's written a book. I've talked with another author on this podcast before, um, Shelly uh, Sackier, who wrote a, a whiskey-specific book. And I, it, is, it is impressive to ever meet anybody who writes a book, much less multiple books. Um, but whenever I was kind of you know doing the initial research on you, I came across my, Michael Amon and I'm like, who is this person? Is How this is a, is it, right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't even immediately think of a you know of a pen name or anything like that. I was like, ah, well, maybe you're you know, maybe you're helping out or whatever. But then obviously, you know, I kind of got to the end of it like, oh, I got it now. And I, well, here, well, here's what happened when I wrote my very first book years ago, I, I was like, you know, what? I should probably just use a, a pen name. So that like if people are Googling me for business, you know, right. you can separate the two identities. You can separate the two. Not, not, not that it was a big deal. I just was trying to make it easier right. on people. So I'm like, well, I'll just use my middle name, um, you know, Amen, which a lot of people call me Michael Amen anyways, particularly mm -hmm. my mom when I've done something shitty. <laughs> Michael Amen. Uh, so familiar with that. So I, I, I did that with my first book and then and then I was sort of locked in because then I didn't want to start, you know, at, start writing books under different names. So I just said, fuck it. Well, I guess we're doing this. And so um, every book I've put out that's been kind of my own work, I've written a couple um, technical books too that, that have mm -hmm. 
gone out uh, to the world as as more um, you know Michael Jurgens. But any of my personal stuff that I'm writing for my own personal enjoyment, it goes out as Michael Amen. Yep. And so the the book, we, we I guess we can start there. But uh, the immediate thing, the book is part and parcel to the blog website as well. Is that a, is that a correct statement? They're correct. Kind of hand, they're hand in hand. So yep. you get this name is is drinking and knowing things. Are are you like a, a big Game of Thrones fan? Huge. Okay. Okay. Huge. But, but I, and I assume like those, Game of Thrones. I'm gonna be one of those douchey Game of Thrones fans that says, "I read the fucking books, and the books are way better." You're not wrong, and so so that that's where I, that's immediately what I was getting ready to ask is you know because the book is always better. There, there's been a very few times where I've seen a movie and been like, ah, it did it justice or whatever. Um, but I was I was watching a podcast podcast or an interview or something, and it had George Martin on it. Um, and whenever they were running the television series and they got to the red wedding, he was talking about you know like everybody they were filming people's and friends' reactions or whatever. And he was like, and I don't understand why all of these people are reacting to this seen in this television show because this book was written 10 years ago. Like this scene was written over 10 years ago. You know what the red wedding is. He's like, maybe you remember a time in the mid nineties, whenever your you know, friend who likes to really read books is just real pissy. It's because they read about the red wedding. And so the books are fantastic. And I appreciate that. Well, um, I, you have... I actually read the entire series twice before mm-hmm. the, the HBO series. And then I read it again just to kind of bring myself to to I think the fifth one came out right as the series was coming out. So maybe I hadn't read that, one, but I had read that. I mean, I read the original ones when they came out. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, remember waiting for the next one to come out. Like, okay, when's it coming out? That's the worst. That is the absolute worst. Cause that's, I stumbled into it by just, I saw the first book and I, I was like, you know, I'm going to read this is before the, the television show was going to be an option. Somebody recommended or whatever. And I read it and I didn't know it was a book series. This has happened like four or five different times <laughs> where like the wheel of time series or something like, I don't know that they're a series. And I read the first book. I'm like, this is really good. I wonder if there's going to be another one. And then I find out like only two of the 15 books are out and I have to wait, you know, a year, two years, five years or with, you know, George Martin's situation. I don't know. Who, who knows if we're ever going to get the final book? Never you know? coming out. By the way, I'll, I'll, have you read uh, The Name of the Wind? Yes. <laughs> yes. Speaking speaking of some fucked up books that have yet to come out yet. Right. Yes. That, that that's and that, man, it, these guys. I, I don't know what it is. So George Martin is one of the most talented authors ever uh and, and i've told a number of people this when they started watching the television show like he's gonna write a really good character and then he's gonna kill that person in the next hundred pages yeah and then he's gonna write another character that's slightly worse than the other one he's gonna make you love that person he's gonna kill that till you get to the end and one of the people that you hated the most in the beginning is now the hero like you know like we end up with Tyrion lannister being the primary character yeah and you hate him in the first 75 to 100 pages of the first book. Like, it's brilliant. And it also is everything Gen X to me. Like, this is, like, Generation X, this is perfect for us. It's like, yep, yep we have to have a hero we hate. Yep. So yeah. you, 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 you kind of came off of this, but you wrote this blog, this website blog. I, I hate using the term blog because it almost seems reductive. Um, you know, there, there's a little more content and context to it that, but it's turned into this book. And, um, when, when I first kind of became aware of who you were, I, you know, immediate, I'm gonna go out and buy the book. You know, I I need to have the book. I need to look at it, make sure that there's something here. 
Um, and it was, it's good. It's really good. And it, and it, it kind of plucked a string, a reminiscent string for me. Like, uh, I'm at a point now in my life where I'm like super into whiskey, but the first time I ever started thinking about food or beverages in a kind of a heightened level was immediately. And I'm, I'm going to be one of those people immediately around sideways. You remember the movie sideways? I'm sure yeah. you remember the movie sideways. Absolutely. The degree that Paul Giamatti's character talks about his passion for Pinot Noir. I'm like, I need this in my life. Right. And so then I've start like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to get into wine, but I showed you where I am in Kentucky. It's not exactly <laughs> um, the, the, the holy land of, of, of wine and whatnot, but it is for, for bourbon. But I get this book and I read through, you know, the first 20 or so entries and it's, to me, it is like the best version of a daily affirmation book. It's just like suggesting wines, right? Like, cause that's what daily affirmation, like, like the, the, the pot, the website series was kind of a daily post on, you know, this one, this one, this one, sort of building your repertoire, but this is so much better than that. So like, where did this come, where, where did this ideas come from? Like, how, how did you get to oh, this? Well, and I, I, of course, as a writer, you always love accolades from someone saying, I got your book and it was awesome. But uh, more importantly, I think, you know, I've read, I don't know how many thousands of books in my life, but very, very rarely do I read a book and then take action in my life because of the book. And when I do, that's, that to me is like, that that was a fucking worthy investment of a read because I'm doing something different in my life. And and I loved before the show, you were talking that you would, you'd already gone out and, and identified four wines that you wanted to try and got them. And so that to you has been one of those books, which is awesome. But uh, here's how all this started. When I first got serious about studying for wine. I went out and I bought every wine book that there was. And I would read them and and they're just very informative and and also incredibly boring. You know, the encyclopedia of wine, the wine bible, mm-hmm. you know, uh wine species, wine and grapes. It's like great reference manuals, but not the kind of thing you just want to jump on and 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 read on an airplane, but also learn some shit. Right. And so uh, I was like, why isn't there like, even Sideways, right? Which was a novel and it's a good novel. Mm-hmm. Even Sideways, it was a little girly. You know what I mean? Yep. It's a little girly. I'm like, I want to read a wine book with this guns and scams and schemes. And, you know, I want to read some like, meat to it. Some meat to it. Yeah. Something, that, something that's, you know, that's, that's, like engaging emotionally. And so, but that book didn't exist. So I wrote it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, this, this fiction novel about, um, these, these basically the highest, the secret underground world of high stakes gambling on wine tasting competitions run by the Chinese mafia. And these two dudes that try to scam the system uh-huh. and make off with all the money. It's awesome. Um, so I wrote this book and everybody loved it. Uh, and so they wrote a sequel to that. And I wrote a sequel to, to that. So there's a trilogy of those books. So that's how this whole thing started. Anyway, my friends then who knew I could write, they were like, why don't you start like a wine newsletter? And I'm like, that's fucking stupid. I'm not doing that. There's so many (laughs) wine newsletters and they all suck. And I don't want to be another Yahoo, you know, telling you that this wine tasted like persimmons and violet aromas and shit like that, that you can't pick up, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, I'm not doing it. So I resisted for years. And then... I was on a plane and uh, I was reading another boring wine book, um, <laughs> just, you know, gathering data. And in the book, 
the author was making fun of Shannon Blanc. And I think the actual sentence is Shannon Blanc is a garbage grape or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I read that sentence and I was like, fuck you. It is not. Shannon Blanc <laughs> is awesome. And I don't know who, how you're a wine expert. You're saying this shit. You are wrong. Mm-hmm. This needs to be rectified immediately. So I, so I got, pulled out my laptop on the plane and I wrote this email to my friend saying, hey, everybody, you should go out and drink more Chenin Blanc immediately because it's great. And here's why it's great. And here's where to, here's some specific bottles that I recommend. And I did it just as a response to this, this woman who'd written this fucking book that I disagreed with. And, and so I sent it to my friends and then they all responded and said, this is amazing. Can you send us another one? And I was like, yeah, you know what else I think is cool? Nebbiolo is pretty fucking cool, you know? And that's the that's one of them that I picked, that picked up that 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 exact the, the Nebbiolo and I was going to ask you how to pronounce that Nebbiolo so, it's awesome love it so you started this basically as a as a fuck you to someone else's opinion yeah and I literally just wrote emails to my friends but what happened is is then those friends would forward their email those emails mm-hmm. and then those people would pretty soon I'm getting emails from random people in like other countries like Germany or Australia <laughs> I don't even know they're like hey my friend forwarded me this can you put me on your distribution list and I'm like sure whatever. No problem. And so I did it that way for, I don't know, like probably a year. Mm -hmm. And then it was getting too big to manage out of my inbox. Um, So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to set up a website so people could just go. If they want the damn newsletter, just go put your email address in and you'll just start getting them one at a time from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But then people were like, oh, I came late to the party and we're on number 42. Can you send me all the back issues? And I'm like, no. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not your fucking librarian. I'm sorry you're late right. to this but I don't know you. You live in China. <laughs> like, I'm not going right. to digging through and sending you an email with 42 attachments because you're late. But but it, I was like, okay, this I need some way of doing this. So I'm like, all right, look, I'll badge up the first 52 uh, into a book, and I'll put it out there with the idea that if you're if you truly want to explore, here's a year's worth. Mm-hmm. You can spend five minutes each week reading about a wine, you'll probably laugh, you'll probably cry. You'll, you can go try the wine if you want, or if not, if you don't. But at the end of that year, you will know more about wine than pretty much everybody you know, in a very yeah. non-threatening, sort of fun kind of way. And so that was the whole purpose of it. I, I it was just, I was tired of responding to requests for, for give me all the back issues. And so I put up there and then it became a bestseller. And I was like, huh, shit, all right, thanks <laughs> for doing this. So then I batched up the next 52 and I put it out there so people could have two years. So that's how it all started. Yeah. So that's, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that degree of pettiness. Absolutely connect with that. You know, like, uh, you know what? I think your opinion is stupid and that's why I'm going to write something to the contrary. Um, I like the, the daily approach of this and, and I made the, the, maybe the same mistake other people might is I get the book and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to sit down and read this like a novel. Right. And you can, but it becomes information overload, especially if it's not a category that you're incredibly familiar with to begin with. Totally. Right. So you're, you're learning, you're trying to learn way too much at one time. And so I backed up, you know, I read, I read through the first 20 found four that I really, really liked, you know, I made sure I was, well, I found 10 that I really liked. And then I was like, okay, now let's go find online retailers that have this exact thing that can also ship to Kentucky. Because I don't know if you know anything about direct to consumer laws in Kentucky, but they're still a little bit, archaic 
Isn't that uh, where the know? big um, legal battles going on right now? Isn't that where the lawsuit happened started? Yeah. So we've we we had we actually had a significant one last year. Yeah. Because even within our own state, distillers were having uh, the inability to ship within the state. So you know, like Kentucky's you know the center of of, of bourbon in the United States largely, and. If you distilled in Frankfurt, you could not send it to any other part of the state. And so they actually got that that uh, kind of lessened, right? So now they can ship in inside the state, but bringing in alcohol from outside places, there's very few locations that you can get from. D.C. is one of the places it's allowed to ship here because D.C. is not a state and can do whatever the hell it wants to. I'm in a handful of other places, but it's now it becomes this like, all right, I've got these 10 that I've picked. Let's try to find, you know, three or four that I can find. And so, um, you know, I, I found the four, I brought them in and now I can sit down, I can read the review or not. It's not even a re review is the wrong term there, right? Like the, the educational material that exists for this particular wine. Now I can, I can read it, I can taste it, and then I can kind of come out the other end of it. And one of the things that I appreciate right, is I'm, I'm into whiskey sort of like you're into wine. Not quite though, because you're way like you're, you're getting into the sommelier status and I'm definitely not that, but it's not written from that perspective, which is a lot of the problem with a lot of things, right? I've got this malt whiskey yearbook sitting on my desk here that is truly for the aficionado, but that's only like 5% of the people out there that are trying to drink whiskey. Um, what, what is good for me, or at least what I find good about this is that you're not trying to get into esoteric tasting notes. No. You're just trying to say, this is why this would be good. And here's a little bit of information about how it's grown, where it's grown, what the intended of it, what the region, you know, because you come across a bunch of wines that have, you know, having a Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't mean anything because it could be a cab from the United States. It could be from somewhere else. And those are all going to have significant variations. And you, you kind of educate us, on that and that's that's perfect but it's not so deep that i'm like exactly what you're talking about like I, it's not an you know, elder essence or anything like that it's just like this is good this is a good fucking wine drink it you know yeah and i think i think what happens is is to your point yeah there's five percent of the population that wants to be that aficionado wants to go deep 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 and then there's 95 percent of people that are like i'd be i'm curious about wine but it seems like too much goddamn work Yep. And so like if I'm at a dinner at a restaurant and someone pours me a glass of wine, I'm going to drink it, but I don't want to put the work in. And so I'm like, you don't have to do it this way. And there's no work. It's, it, it will make it fun. And what's interesting to me is I, I know of at least 15 clubs around the U S where there are people who get together uh, in a city on a periodic basis Um uh, once a week or once a month and then they go through the wines from the book i know there's this um there's even a, a group that does it online um mm -hmm. down in auburn alabama oh wow uh, they host uh, a thing where where they have a bunch of people to do it but they all go out locally and they get on like facebook live and then they read the chapter and they go through shit together which i just think mm -hmm. is great like people are having fun with it and they're being curious and i gave i gave the people who were curious but not committed a, an easy roadmap to follow. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's exactly it. And, you know, you can, you know, I, I want to be the, the aficionado person too, but you can't jump straight to that. Um, you know, like, 
I want to know things. Like I want to be the guy who drinks and knows things as well. But yeah. you, you don't you don't immediately hit that rip and 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 get that far into you know down the rabbit hole to the point to where not only are you a wine aficionado, but you're now also, you know, kind of getting certified and saying, you know what, let's start up a completely brand new infant industry in another country around wine. Like that's, a, you know, you just kind of keep climbing the, the different levels um, that exist. But it's, like I said, it's, it's a really good book. Like it, it's a thing that everyone, if you're even remotely interested in connecting with the beverages you drink at a deeper level, um, put it on your shelf. Always put it on your shelf. What's awesome is I get, I, I very commonly get emails and Instagram messages and stuff from people who maybe are three or four months into it. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's like the light bulb turn turns on. And I like, I'll get an email from someone with like a picture of a wine list at a restaurant. They're like, dude, I can do it. I can do <laughs> wine. And they're like, or like they're in a wine store and they're taking pictures of bottles from, you know, that they recognize like, oh, here's a Nebbiolo. Like, oh, look, I'm doing it. And, um, or they're, they're sitting there going like, my friends are making me pick the wines at dinner now. Like I'm the guy. You you become that guy really, really quickly. And it, you know, like wine, whiskey, wine and whiskey people specifically. And I don't think it's, it's not really in a ton of other spirits, but man, they could be pretentious as hell. Like they could just be pretentious as hell and trying to like enter into the market to understand the things like they're already at, you know, like this level and they're going to sort of talk down to you. And um, this approach is similar to what I try to do whenever it comes to, to whiskey conversations, you know, people call me like, what should I buy? You know, they're in the liquor store. What should I buy today? And I'm like, you know, what's the last four things you've had and how do you connect with that? And don't spend a ton of money. And, you know, like don't, don't try to pretend like you're tasting marzipan because if you've never had marzipan in your life, that's not a flavor you can recall. And honestly, like who the hell is drinking or eating marzipan on a regular basis or uh, another one that, that uh, comes across regularly. I can't think it's a, it's a red berry. That's mainly currants. Oh, currants like fresh. Yeah. Fresh currant is not really widespread in the United States. Like not that's so not a thing. You, you might have had currant jelly, which is a different flavor, but we get we get stuck in that like the, the the nerds can get stuck in that and then it makes this huge barrier to entry of people that we just wine and whiskey you want to drink and you want to talk to people like that's what it is like if you're drinking a, a vodka based drink or rum based drink or tequila based drink you're usually just you know at a club at a bar not necessarily interested in a conversation but wine whiskey coffee these things lend themselves to humanity right and that's that's what makes them interesting but the people who hold on the knowledge tend to be pretentious. This is not that. It it isn't, but I, but I would say that like my theory on that is that wine is pretentious in the U S but when you get outside the U S it's not, I mean, like you go to Spain or Italy or Greece, there's just, it's wine's just, wine's just part of the culture. I remember one time I was driving through Northern Italy and, uh, and I stopped at a gas station to get some water and I walked in the door and I was a little hungover. I'll be honest. It was early in the morning. I walked in the door. I'm getting some water. And I look over. And I'm in a fucking gas station in rural Italy. And in the corner of the gas station, there's these two big copper tanks with valves on them. And it mm-hmm. says, wine, one euro 95 per liter. And there's a dude sitting on the fucking floor 
with a five gallon jerry can, <laughs> top mm-hmm. off the jerry can, filling it up out of this tank. And I like walk in and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm trying to process it and I get my water and I go to pay for it and it's four euros. And so I'm like, <laughs> the water is twice as much as, as, yes, as, as the wine is cheaper than the wine. Absolutely. Yeah. And I sort of walk out the door and I got in the car and I'm, and I'm telling the guys I'm with this story. And, and, and so they're like, well, how was the wine? Right. You go, didn't buy the wine. And I go, fuck, I didn't buy the, and I, I, this is like, like, I don't have very many regrets in my life. Right. <laughs> Not trying the 195 Euro gas station wine out of the fucking jug, but that's, that's how it is. And, and no one, right. like, if you did that, if you walked into a, uh, a dirty shell gas station and there was a jar of wine and some dude was sitting on the floor filling up a, a, a jelly jar out of it. You'd be like, that guy, oh. but over there, it's not a big deal. And I, I kind of understand why though, because the rest of the, you know, particularly in Europe, they've been doing wine for 2000, 3000, 5,000 years. It's just not a big thing. Right. Um, and for us, we only really started 50 years ago. You know, Mandavi basically came out and told the world, we can be we can be good at wine too, and everyone else is like, "No, you can't." He's like, "Well, I'm going to show you." Right. And so, in order to get there, we had to we had to really take it seriously. And now we're paying the price for that because it's this we've made it this inaccessible thing for so many people, which fucking sucks. Like wine is fun. Wine brings people together. You can have a blast with wine, um, and people don't, and they don't even right. explore it because they think it's too douchey or too much work or whatever, and that shuts him out of this, having these amazing experiences with their friends and drinking cool shit. Yeah. And it can, it, you know, it's, it, it feels like at least in, in spirits, people are cautious to take risks on buying something. Um, and this is the, the other author that I had on, we were talking about scotch and I don't know a ton about scotch. Don't know anything about it. And I said, you know, like the first time that I walked into a store to try to buy some scotch, I felt an awful lot like the first time that I went to, the pharmacy and needed to pick up tampons for my wife. Like, I don't know what to buy here. Like I have no context of what is good, what is appropriate, what's a decent price. And it's like, I need someone to tell me what that is. But because of the way Western culture has adopted wine and alcohol largely, I mean, specifically think about where I am in the world, right? Like we're in the buckle of the Bible belt. Like we're still in prohibition era. Like the County yeah. that I live in was still a dry County, which I don't know if you even know what that is, but some people do. until about yeah, 15, yeah, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, wow. this place was completely dry. Um, and so th- there's this, there's a stigma that's involved with it. And then there's this potential pretentious air that comes around because of the way it's been portrayed, maybe in media or because, but you're right. Like it, it doesn't have to be, a transcendent transformative experience drinking a glass of wine sometimes it's this is good i like the people that i'm with and we're gonna have a good time like it can be there i would say we talk about these things called epiphany wines and the epiphany wine is where you drink it and the moment sort of embeds itself in your head for forever yep. um, you remember the people you were with you remember the exact wine you were drinking you remember the glass you were drinking it out of you remember what you were eating you remember the fucking waiter's name if you're like you were it's just solidified and it's so awesome when it happens but it it doesn't happen um often but if you if you talk to anyone who's a really wine geek they can tell you it was this wine it was that wine they have four or five or whatever and i would say in my lifetime uh i've had a number of those and a lot of times it wasn't, I wasn't drinking a $500 bottle of wine. I was drinking a $20 bottle of wine. And I think that that lends 
I think that lends to it for me because maybe you didn't have that expectation. You know, I've, I've tried some expensive things in my life and they've, I've always felt like, or most of the time I felt like the value and the taste matched. Right. Yeah. But it's hard to have that kind of epiphany nature when you spent $200 on a bottle of wine and it tasted like $200 bottle of wine. Like it met your expectation. It's when you taste the $20 bottle of wine and you're like, what was that? Yeah. Like that's where it comes from. Holy shit. Well, yeah. I'll tell you this. here's a story about an epiphany wine. So I was in uh, a group of, of us had gone to France to run a wine marathon. And at the end of the trip, we ended up in Paris and it, we just happened to be there on my birthday. And so one of the girls in our group had, as a surprise, gotten us into Guy Savoy, which is one of the highest rated restaurants in the world. And so my girlfriend had, she wasn't on the trip, but she sent a bottle of Sauternes to the hotel from mm -hmm. my birth year. So it was actually, it was an expensive yeah. bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. We thought that we would bring it to the, to the restaurant and, and drink it and celebrate it. And so... We called the restaurant to confirm that that was cool. And they're like, no, that's not fucking cool. And so we're like, okay. So we go to the dinner. We have a great dinner. Mm -hmm. And then the next day we're all leaving. And I got, I got this bottle of 1970 Like We can't just fucking, like, like I'm not going to take it on the plane with me. Like, right. what, what are we going to do? So we went out um, and it's the morning. And we went out and we found a donut store. We bought donuts. <laughs> and we got plastic cups. And we went to Montmartre. Um, and there was a park bench and we sat on this park bench drinking sauntered and eating donuts at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Anyways, uh, the point of all this was we thought it was awesome. My mm -hmm. son was with us and he was, I don't know, 17 at the time, maybe. Um, and not a wine guy at all. Um, and so he has this experience and, and, uh, and I don't, you know, we all, we all get on planes and we leave. A couple of years later, um, my son graduates from high school uh, or uh, yeah, when was, maybe it was the year after he graduated. Anyways, he's, he, him and his friends decide they're going to take a trip to Europe. So he goes to Europe with two of his friends for like a month and they tool around. I get a photo from him that is a photo of the fucking park bench. He texts it to me. He goes, guess where I am? And I'm like, holy shit. That meant enough. That experience meant enough to you that you dragged your friends to go take a photo of a fucking park bench in Paris. That's the kind of shit that I'm talking about. Those that, types of, of yeah, it, it's an it's an imprinted memory. It's 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 a thing that you're going to connect with forever. And and, forever. and it may not be for me, but it could be somebody in the group that I'm with, right? And that's what but that, that's what social spirits are about. That's that's what it feels like social spirits are about at least um for me. So you mentioned you mentioned running in there. Like you just, you just kind of casually did the, you're an adventure runner. Like, is this a thing? Like, this is a thing you do. This is the thing I do. That is correct. Uh, my goal. So I started running marathons when I was about 22. Mm -hmm. um, and I, uh, you know, did the normal thing like, Oh, let's go sign up for the LA marathon again. Let's go run it again. And, 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 and that's great. And there's the, you get a lot of joy out of that. Um, and then I ended up doing a marathon down um, deep in the, in the heart of Antarctica near the South Pole on a glacier. And I almost died. And I came out of that experience saying like, it was a hundred times more profound than running the LA Marathon again. And so at mm -hmm. that point in time, I was like, oh shit, I'm doing this wrong. I need to seek out 
weirder, harder, more bizarre races that will be more like epiphany races than just running around right. another city. Um, and so yeah. I started like searching for weird shit and then started <laughs> doing it. So that's, I mean, I, I don't understand the the degree of self-hatred you have to have to just, you know, <laughs> run that much, but I have some coworkers that absolutely do. Um, one of the ladies I work with, she's into the, you know, hundred mile yep. enduro trail races where you lose all your toenails and, and do those types of things. And, um, about a year and a half ago, I got a call from a coworker. I was like, Hey, um, I don't, I don't know if you know anything about Ragnar races and they're not, they're not quite that bad, but you know, it's like, a, it's like a team relay event and it's 36 hours. And she calls and she says, Hey, we're doing this Ragnar race in Kentucky. It's the bourbon chase is what it's called, you know? And she's like, we're going to run a couple hundred miles in 36 hours. And I'm putting a team together to run. And I was like, I think you've called the wrong person because I'm not that. And she's like, no, 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 no. We need a van driver because they, you know, they run relays. And so you got to be the person to drop off at the next thing. And I'm like, this is a thing I can do for you. You know, like I can be the guy that stays up for 36 hours and just drives to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I don't know what it is, but you running people are some of the happiest people when you are self-abusing. And I don't understand it. Like you've slept for 45 minutes and 36 hours and you've run a total of, 36 40 42 miles it's been a torrential downpour it was 96 degrees when we started and it was damn near freezing when we finished because a storm rolled through you almost got hit by a car you run up a mountain you run down a mountain like but everyone is smiling and happy and i'm like i i enjoyed every minute of it but what is wrong with you (laughs) it is funny it's um I, I think the thing about running is remember when you were a kid and then recess would happen and you'd jump up and you'd run outside and you'd just fucking run in circles and you put your hands right. out like you were an airplane and shit like that until you until it became not cool anymore, right? And then you stop. Right. But I think that the human body, the human mind more so, the human body's engineered to run and the human mind is connected to it because that's how we survived for 50,000 years. You know, you throw mm-hmm. a stick at an animal and wound it, and then you'd run after it for three days until it finally lost enough blood that it would just give up and then you'd have shit to eat. So it like, it meant this, this thing to us and, and that switch is in our brains just waiting to be flipped on. And if you accidentally flipped it on, like I did, I accidentally flipped one on and I was like, ah, this is fucking cool. I, I should do more of this. And, um, and, and that's, I think kind of what, what happens you find, you find out who you are and you connect to all these primal things that our body's supposed to do. And it just makes you fucking feel good. By the way, I will tell you the process of running I don't fucking like, like <laughs> I'm the guy that's sitting out there every time going, why am I doing this? This fucking sucks. It's hot. Uh-huh. My feet hurt. Like, this is bullshit. I literally went for a run the other morning and just a little four mile run. And I was like, not even halfway through it. And I'm like, I want this thing to be over. Like <laughs> I, it's, it, and if you talk to runners, they'll all tell you, no one says like, Oh, I love, you know, the but they act- remember it with fondness. They remember it with this just, unabashed fondness like that's because i they like they had a good time they cheered each other on but at the end of the race everybody was like yeah no i'm not doing this again next year i'm <laughs> exhausted this was you know whatever and two weeks later they're all like 
that was a blast. Yeah, the next one. Let's go. Let's go. We're ready. Like, you know, they were going to do one out in San Diego and it ended yep. up having to get pushed or whatever. And so they're going to do it again this fall. They're like, yeah, we're running it again. And I'm like, it, and there's something about that, you know, the farther you get distance wise from the suck, the more fun you can remember it as, but it's this, it, the other part, I think maybe the part that is not as fun for me, cause I've done some running, you know, I, I was, I was an active tennis player and part of that was, you know, I have to condition. And so I have to make sure that I'm running in the off season, whatever, but yeah. there's this, there's this solitary nature that can occur whenever you're out there running. Um, and, and, maybe I've got this narrative wrong, but you found yourself in a, in a similar position um, running in a foreign country. And while you're in this like sort of shitty solitary nature of just running and hating it, like you developed a thought that like, why doesn't this country have its own wine industry? Like that's where your brain is. Some other people are just like, can I make it the next mile? Can I make it the next two miles or whatever? But like your brain is thinking of budding an infant industry. This, this, this is Bhutan. Bhutan, Bhutan. is Bhutan wine. This, this thing that didn't exist. You're like, it should like, this came out of a running brain. Is that, is it, is that correct? That's exactly what happened. Yep. So, but, but then you have the audacity to like, okay, now let's make it a thing. Like there's a lot of ideas. I've had a lot of ideas, but like, okay, let's make it an industry. And, and then you did. And so I want to hear about the, the, the Bhutan wine. Okay. Well, so, Let's start with where Bhutan is, which Bhutan's in the Himalayas. It's between Tibet and Nepal. It's about the same size. I didn't know this, by the way, but my girlfriend had read a book about a woman who moved to Bhutan and fell in love. She read it in high school. So the whole time we had been together, she kept saying, I want to go to Bhutan. So I'm, I'm searching the internet. I'm on all these email lists and I get a spam email that says Bhutan Marathon. And I go, oh, that's that place that my girlfriend's talking about. Mm -hmm. So I click on it and they're like, we're organizing a group uh, to go run the first international marathon in Bhutan. If you want to go click this thing, I'm like, fucking I'm in. Sounds great. So I click it. I do the thing. I get, I get accepted. I go to my girlfriend. I go, baby, guess what? I'm taking you to Bhutan. Surprise. And she's like, amazing. We're going to the Himalayas. I go, no, we're not. Bhutan's an island in Indonesia. And she goes, no, it isn't. It's in the fucking Himalayas. I didn't even know where it was. And so I go, wait, I just signed this up to run a marathon in the fucking Himalayas. Are you kidding me? And she goes, yeah, let's go. And so I go, oh, all right, we're, I guess we're doing this. Right. And so um, I went there and a couple of things happened. So the first thing that happened is, so Bhutan is like the only carbon negative country on the planet. And they're trying to become the first 100% organic country on the planet. They grow really great crops, which is odd because you don't really think of the Himalayas as a place to grow things, but they grow the world's best red rice and the world's best mandarin oranges and the world's best cardamom and the world's best, like everything I ate when I was there was fucking awesome. And so I just assumed where plants grow, there's grapes. It's like that everywhere in the world, everywhere. Right. And so I just assumed it. And so I just was on the lookout. I was like, hey, where's the wineries? Where's the wineries? I want to visit a winery, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So we go to run the race. And the first part of the race, like you're up in this national park and you kind of run down. It's just fucking awesome. Um, you run down these, you know, by this like rushing whitewater rapids on one side and the national park on the other. It's beautiful. And then you come out the second half, you start to run through like this rural agriculture area. 
And it's all these terrace slopes. And I'm running through these and I'm looking at them. I'm going, where are the fucking grapes? Yeah, this, this is wine country. This is wine country. This is wine country. Yeah, I like, where are they? I got to find them. I got to find them. And so randomly, after the race, we had dinner with some of the government officials who wanted to meet the crazy foreigners who came to the country. to, <laughs> And so I, I ended up asking one of them, hey, where are the wineries? I want, I'm not leaving until I get to try your Bhutanese wine. And they go, we don't have any. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? How could you, this is one, what, you don't have any? Why not? And mm-hmm. he goes, we don't have any grapes. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, like, grapes have never grown here before. We don't have them. And I'm like, oh, shit, we need to fucking solve for this right now. And so, and I didn't, I had never anticipated that I was going to be the guy that did it. I just thought it would be cool if they did it. So mm-hmm. I worked with the government for a couple of years, like kind of showing them how to do it and building out a business plan and coming up with the wine rules and and, and everything. Just literally like, I thought it would be awesome if they did it. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, we're moving forward with this. Um, we're we're going to need a partner to help us. And I'm like, yeah, you should probably get someone who knows what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> they're like, yeah, uh, that's going to be You're the cute. guy. You're the and guy. I'm like, Wait, I'm, I get to do it? I get to be the guy that invents a wine industry in, for a country? I get to fucking figure it all out? And they're like, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm so all in on this. This is awesome. So- so yeah, That's, so now we have we have six vineyards in their fifth growing season. Mm-hmm. I have two vineyards in my second, third, I'm sorry, third growing system. And I actually just agreed to uh, a lease on another vineyard yesterday. So, so, so is the goal for this to be an export for them or is this just something for them to have no, you know, as a part of the goal of is to be an export for sure. Well, like our mm-hmm. plan is we want to scale to about 2,000 acres, which by frame of reference, like Napa is like 40,000. So yeah. You know, that's, you know, 120 the size of Napa over the next 10 years. I actually think this is like a hundred year project to build the next Napa Valley, but I'll be, I'll be fucking dead. Um, right. Well, I mean, in, in given the remote nature of where you're at, that probably adds in, creates that need for it to be like a hundred year situation. Cause you're not, I mean, you're in a carbon neutral place, which means there's not going to be what I would imagine. I mean, this is all me guessing, but I would imagine there's not a significant infrastructure in place that allows vehicles to move around or <laughs> that carbon negative becomes a carbon neutral or, you know, whatever else. Yeah. You, uh, there's some practical considerations to building a wine industry in the Himalayas that I failed to consider in the depths <laughs> of my passion for thinking about why to do this. But well, and, and it's, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of different people who've started off, you know, on, on audacious projects. I was talking to a, a distiller in um, Michigan and he is trying to recapture or regrow a specific type of rye that was grown in the United States uh, pre-prohibition. And, so when he started off, he found the rye that he wants. He was able to get it from Russia because they still had this particular type of rye that was brought over here to begin with. And then he convinced the national park system to let him start growing it on an island that is a national park in Michigan. Like, like they just like, yeah, you can, but he doesn't have the, the means to get a car there or a tractor or anything. So he has to buy like World War II landing ships to haul the equipment over to do the farming and then bring the equipment back. But if you start thinking about how hard it's going to be from the onset, you might not ever do it. You'll, right? you like, won't do it. Right. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, take on the true agile mindset and just go see what you can kind of create well, or build or whatever. 
and for for me, like just being as passionate as I am about wine, for me, I think the best wine is wine that expresses a sense of place. Like anybody mm-hmm. can make like a recipe wine that says it's 14% alcohol and it's 40% yeah. oak and it's 10 grams of sugar and we're going to add shit to it to make it a uniform color. Like anyone could do that. It's not fucking interesting. Right. What's interesting is where you drink a wine and it is different and it, and it sort of tells, it speaks to you about where it came from. And, you know, it's from Sicily. And so you get some smoke because there's volcanic soil and you get some acid because the cooling ocean breezes and you get really bright fruit because it's fucking sunny as hell in Sicily. Like, okay, I, I kind of get a sense of that. And so for me, Bhutan, if you go there, like it's a bucket list destination travel spot. For many yeah, it is for me now too. It, it, it like, it, and it's obviously, it's likely a place that I won't ever go to, but it's on my bucket list and I didn't even know it needed to be there until I found out who you were. And so thanks for that. You know, like my, my, my potential future bank account is really uh, excited <laughs> about the need for me to go to this particular location, but it, you know, the scenery is majestic. It's all the things you want, but that is, you're right. Like, you know, anybody can, anybody can create a wine and it can be an awful lot like McDonald's where they all taste the exact set Cracker Barrel. Any one of those chain restaurants, it all tastes the same everywhere. Um, there's a reason why people are seeking out locally sourced ingredients in restaurants and for wineries and for whiskey and for anything like what makes you unique? What makes your, what is your flavor of your country? And that's, you get to create that. Like they don't have that. Like that's not a thing that exists. They don't have that. And, and Bhutan is such such a magical split place. I mean, people that go there, they literally will tell you it was a life-changing experience. It already has that, that, that this profound uniqueness to, I mean, the fucking country doesn't measure gross domestic product. They measure gross national happiness. I mean, and you feel it when you're there. Like people are like, we just want to be happy. It, let's just let's just be chill and be happy like it's that sort of thing and so for me uh knowing all of the hurdles i might still have done it just because i think if you could capture what bhutan was in a bottle mm-hmm. and and send it to the rest of the world i don't know what it's gonna i don't know what it's gonna taste like right. and, and frankly at some level I, I don't have any expectations about it. It has to taste like black currant or whatever the fuck or marzipan. Yeah. You know, what I want it to taste like is Bhutan. And and in order to, to do that, I, I think people around the world would be like, wow, this is amazing. It may not be the best wine that they've ever tasted. It may not have the same flavors as the, maybe two. Like, I don't know, right? Nobody knows, but it will be uniquely Bhutanese. And I think that to me, is more maybe even the cooler part than inventing the industry. Cause I could go to fucking Guam and build some greenhouses and get some oak barrels and, and, you know, make a recipe right. of wine and great. Now Guam has wine, but that's not what I'm trying to do. Right. But there's a story, there's a story that, that's here. And that's what, that's the only reason that I ever started this podcast is because stories are sticky, right? Like you can create anything, but whenever we start talking about like relating to products, relating to things, relating to brands, if you've got a truthful and um, well thought out story, people connect with it. And, and, and that's exactly what you're, you're building out the idea of, you know, more countries should measure their success and gross national happiness because GDP doesn't really get us a ton of happy places. I mean, money is essential for some things, but uh, happiness is not one of those things. It's, and I think the, the goal, all of our goals in life, 
should be to have a happy life. And if, and if that also means being rich, well, cool, mm -hmm. go do that. But if it means helping people, or if it means being a scuba diver instructor in Belize, or if it means being a bartender in New York and just banging tourists until you're 65 years old, you know, whatever that is, yeah. right? Like that's maybe how you should live. But it to, can be a definition, but it doesn't have to be a definition. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're at the same place there. Um, so the, how long before we see some Bhutan, Bhutan wine? Well, that's a good fucking question. Um, we were gonna, we were planning to do our first harvest this year. Um, and in the world of grapes, the way that you prune the vines the previous year dictates how much fruit you get the next year. Last year, Bhutan was on lockdown because of COVID. Right. And so the people there have never grown grapes before. I, they're ridiculously skilled agronomists. They grow mm -hmm. amazing stuff. They know how to grow shit, but they don't know how to grow wine grapes. And so we were trying to show them how to prune and stuff over like WhatsApp and videos. <laughs> yeah. The bottom line is we, we failed. And so um, I finally got a full-time viticulturalist in as, as lockdown ended uh, into the country in around April. And we had to go through and basically reprune all the vineyards. So we didn't end up getting the level of fruit this year that we had hoped for. Um, so we'll make the first vintage next year. Mm -hmm. And which is kind of cool. Like if you think about, imagine having the first bottle of bourbon ever made in the United States. Like you know, it's exactly it, it, it. You're, you're on the precipice of something that's interesting. And, and I, I completely get this trying to, to teach how to farm grapes to people who don't know what it is over the phone. I, I work in ag technology and we're working with North American farmers, but okay. it's the same as trying to get them to understand technology. A lot of the times, like, you know, they, they know how to farm, they know how to be agronomists, they know how to do all of the stuff, but now it's like, all right, now let's talk about technology. Like let's build something brand new. And it's in, incredibly, incredibly complicated, but the, I mean, selfishly, I'm asking because I'm like, hey, you know, I got to keep my eye open because I don't know how well known it is, but I'm looking for a bottle as soon as it's available. <laughs> well, so, so, I mean, we, so the plan, this is my plan. Mm -hmm. My plan is next year we do the first harvest. There is actually a, a documentary film crew that's making a feature like documentary about it just because the last time this was done was in New Zealand in like the 1800s. Like, right. and there's probably not too many other countries left that can grow wine that don't. Right. Um, so I'm going to make the first barrel ever. And that, so that'll be 300 bottles and I'm going to bottle those up. And those are probably going to be given out to the country and to the, the museums and, and, and the, the investors in the, in the winery, maybe a few special other people. And then the, the rest of all the rest of the harvest for that season will just be in special bottles of like, First harvest ever. Not as cool mm -hmm. as first barrel, but first harvest. Right. And right, we'll make right. those available. Uh, and if you want one, I'll get you one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So barrels, that's, that's, that, that just brought up a question that I hadn't thought of until this moment. Um, what are you going to do for barrels? Is there, is there a, a, a tree that grows regionally in Bhutan that would make good barrels? Or are you bringing wine barrels in? You do, you know, American oak? English how, how, how John, how geeky of an answer do you want for this question? 
Can we go geeky on it? So you can go as geeky as you want because right now I'm working on trying to get a cooperage on so I can <laughs> talk about what, like my, my in-laws are wood, uh, woodworkers and wood, my, I come from a long line of home builders. And so I, I want to talk about that. Okay. That, go as geeky as you want. Cool. So in the wine world, um, there are, you're going to use oak mm-hmm. for the most part. There there are a couple places in Italy that use cherry and chestnut for specific reasons, but for the most part, cherry and chestnut suck. You're going to use oak and you're only going to use certain species of oak, primarily French oak, Slovenian oak, uh, to a certain extent and American oak. The issue with, um, oak is as you are aware, you know, the, the growth rate, um, impacts how big the rings are. Mm-hmm. And the closer the rings are together, the more fine grain the oak is, the less oxygen gets in, the less porous it is, the less oak transfers to the glass. American oak tends to be uh, grown in warmer climates. So it's broader rings. It's more porous. You get, you get more, um, more tannin transference from the oak to the wine. And also with American oak, you get kind of a dill quality mm-hmm. in wine. I don't know if it's the same in bourbon. Probably not. It, well, it, it can be. I mean, it, it just depends. It has a lot more to do with the mash bill that comes into play because if you look at high rye or rye whiskey specific, specifically, you'll end up with that deal, and it has a lot to do with the oak, and it has a lot more to do with the fact that most of the oak that's being used now is new growth. If we go back 50 years, they're cutting old growth, which has denser ring patterns, denser wood. You know, even American oak was behaving differently, and so when yeah, you try to climate change, so, it's, it's warming up. Well, a just, bit. just because they were they were grown in the wild, right? And so they actually had to stand up against uh, you know winds and whatnot. When oh, you put, sure. When you when you actually farm oak, right? They're going to be in rows. They're going to be in columns, and yeah. the tree on the outside will be the strongest, but the tree on the inside won't because there's a windbreak that exists, and it's it's just a part of you know the 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 farming ecosystem that exists in North America and how you would farm trees, we don't get the same quality because we're also getting taller and a more appropriately sized trees faster, but the ring spacing is, is farther out because it's growing faster because it can, because it's, we're giving it all the things it needs where it's not having to fight for sunlight or for water with all the other plants, like older trees just were different and that's okay. But that lends to some of these problems is exactly what you're talking about. Um, that they yeah, don't exist. It, you, it, 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 well, I, I guess it depends. Like if you are looking for, for barrels that have a much wider, coarser, uh, mm-hmm. you know, grain and, and provide a lot more tannin transference and a lot more oxygenation, yeah. fucking great. But if you're looking for something that's, that's more mellow, then that's a problem, right? Yeah. And all the, all the whiskey geeks are, tra- are they're chasing a ghost of the past, right? They're there. I, I want my whiskey. Like the biggest thing you could do is can you find a dusty whiskey, a Jim Beam that was made in 1975. So, you know, it's older. Um, it's going to be older whiskey. It's going to be older wood that's used in it. It's going to be potentially heritage grains. Like that's what everybody's after. And we're never going to be able to recreate that because of modernization of agriculture, because of barrels, because of yeast strains. Like, it's just not a thing, but that's what people want. Like they want to be able to have um, less of the tannic transfer and more of the vanillins and whatnot that come out of the, the barrel itself. Yeah. Yeah. So for wine, um, essentially the, the, the Holy grail is French oak and mm-hmm. it's French oak barrels that come from specifically five forests in France. 
And those forests are pretty heavily regulated by the government. They can cut down a certain amount of trees every year and they've got to yep. plant more ones. And to put it into context, uh, a French oak barrel is 1500 bucks, an American oak barrel is 500, roughly speaking. So, you know, you're talking about 300 bottles. So if you want to spend extra for a French oak barrel, it's costing you $3.30 per bottle of wine cost. So by the right. time that wine gets to market, and it goes to the distributor and retail channels, it's $20 more expensive to the retail consumer if you're going to, if you're going to go that route. So, um, but, it, but it makes a more refined style of wine. Anyway, back to your whole point. Bhutan has a fuckload of oak. Nice. And I will show you. I had to, I had to step away from my desk here. No, that's but good. Literally sitting here in my office, I have a ton of different samples of different species <laughs> of Bhutanese oak trees uh -huh. right here that we think it would make it even more uniquely Bhutanese. And by the way, Bhutan gets a little cool. Mm -hmm. It's not going to grow fast. The rings are pretty fucking tight. Right. But there's a bunch of different species. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to do some, te some testing on different Bhutanese oak strains to determine is if, there one that is suitable is there one that's suitable and I, I I am hopeful that there is but frankly to mm -hmm. be honest I'm I have my head consumed right now with dealing with the bird problem and the monkey problem and the fucking beetle problem and the <laughs> lack of rain and what I mean like I, 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 I'm more worried about grapes right now but my longer term strategy is to build out find the one that does work Mm -hmm. and build a cooperage around that and inevitably you know my 100 year plan 100 years from now that bootney's wine is going to be aged in bootney's oak barrels and by the way how fucking cool would it be if you could get like a lagavulin and, and aged in a bootney's oak barrel or a look hey i'm, I'm already I'm, I'm telling you right now there's already going to be people looking for these barrels um because you know you're, you're talking about french oak and that is hitting uh, has been more recently hitting the the bourbon industry in the last five seven years. Oh, it has French really? oak is, yeah. So it started with Maker's Mark. They're doing their Maker's Forty Six. I don't know if you've seen it out on shelves. That is aged a secondary round with a French oak stave, and so they're dropping French oak into. Oh, but they're doing um, staves, not barrels. Right, they're doing staves, but, could, but, but, so but they're trying to pick up vanillas more than yeah. Canada. Now everyone yeah. else is seeking out. Can I get French oak barrels? And so you've got other people that are picking up second use French French oak barrels or maybe first use French oak barrels to be able to age their their bourbon in. And and so then when they started doing that, then people are like, well, what else can I get? And so now there's Ambrurana. And there is the Mizunara from, from Japan. Like they want all of them. So as soon as you say, oh, we've got Bhutanese um, oak, some distillery showing up and saying, can I get one of those barrels? And specifically wine finished even like you, you won't have a problem selling that barrel a second round, but you, you you've got to take some I, I, folks I, over to train them on how to make it. Add value to it. Right. So like yeah. you can buy a new Bhutanese oak barrel for a thousand bucks, but if you want a uh, one that's one, one year finished, it's $2,000. And this this is the thing that is, I think, probably the most brilliant about wine finishing is that it, a winery has taken something that before they had to try to sell to someone as a planter. Once it was used up, they're like, well, we're done. You know, I'm going to make it as a landscaping planter in my yard or I'm going to take the staves and make something. Now, 
whiskey makers are fighting over them being able to get it. It's brilliant, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant marketing. Now the business model shifts. Like we, we don't even have to sell our wine. We just have to use up the barrels and then sell them to the whiskey the, guys. And we'll listen, you're, you're not wrong. There is, um, I was talking to a, uh, uh, a brand that is based in New Jersey. It's called Penelope. They do a rosé cask finished bourbon and they're starting up a rosé company just so they have enough casks to finish in because there's not enough rosé casks out there for them. Well, because most rosé is not aged in cask to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're like, well, we can make the wine. And they really don't care if they make a ton off the wine because they really need the barrels is what they're really, really after. And so it's just vertical integration. Like it's really, really smart. And Scotch has been doing that for a while too. They'll invest in sherry and pour the sherry out on the ground just so they have a sherry barrel to age their Scotch in. So yeah, you you won't have a problem selling a, a, a Bhutanese wine, even if it's not the Bhutanese oak. You'll still be able to sell that. Somebody's going to be after it. But as soon as you get that story through and through. So that, that's been part of my, the grand vision all along. I think that the challenge with, so Bhutan has this really interesting um, thing as part of their constitution. Um, they wrote it in that it can never be less than I think 68% forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now it's Brilliant. like 73%. So they mm-hmm. have, I mean, fucking trees everywhere the challenge is they have a bunch of different um species i mean there's Mm -hmm. species sprawl so step one is we got to figure out which ones might work and then as as you know probably if if you guys are leaning in on this you know you got to age the the wood for at least you got to weather it for at least by three years outside Mm -hmm. before you can even build a a barrel yeah it it depends on climate like if you're aging in tennessee you can get away with probably 18 months but the further north you go, the cooler the climate gets, the less, um, the more time it's got to sit to be able to kind of do that air curing. And there's a there's a stave mill that's down the road from my in-laws house and kind of seeing how they operate. Even in Tennessee, they'll still have to stick sprinklers on it and um, re-wet the wood because if it dries too fast, it'll crack. You it'll know, crack. It, it's called checking on the ends is what it'll do. And then it's just not useful as a stave anymore. And so, yeah, like you've got to identify the species You've got to create the milling situation to be able to get it down to a stave. Then you've got to train somebody on how to be a cooper. Like this is a multi-year process, but it is. Yeah. So I, I would guess uh, my goal right now is to try to just get to the stage where we're making wine. You know, I'm seven years deep into this thing probably. And, and, um, and I need to make a bottle of wine and mm-hmm. understand where we're at and which will happen next year. But I would guess probably in the next two to three years, we're going to start leaning in on the cooperage situation, mm-hmm. which means in probably six to seven years, we'll, we'll start having barrels. And my guess is we're going to fuck up uh, initially. <laughs> and so it'll probably be right. 10 years before we start having good barrels. And, um, but but my vision would be a hundred years from now, like Bhutanese oak barrels are relevant globally as, as our French oak barrel. Yeah. You, you better not talk too loud because as soon as you do, then your folks like Kelvin Cooperage and ISC and all these other places, they're going to start paying attention to Bhutan. They're going to be like, Hey, what's going on over here? There's a new species of oak and you know, they, they want to kind of become a player. So maybe I guess you're well, already friends with the government. Good, so fucking good, good fucking luck. Like, you know, it's not the sort of place you just stroll in and fire up some legal Zoom paperwork and start a company. It's- right. Yeah. Well, and, and the upside is, you know, if they're measuring themselves off of gross national happiness instead of GDP, 
um, they're going to be more protective of this is not about money. This is well, about. Well, what's funny is, is like, I think if I had come to them initially and said, I want to build a wine industry to line my own prop coffers you know, my own pockets or like, see you later man they would be like yeah go fuck yourself but i i never like i truly and i still to this day i truly believe like this country has the potential to express itself in wine in a way that makes people pay attention around the world and we should do it just solely for that i, I literally the first years we were talking about this i i had never envisioned myself being involved in any way mm -hmm. i was just like you, guys, you need you have to an idea or hand it to somebody. You just do it. Happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But if I if I had strolled to the, 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 the door and said, hey, guys, I got this idea. I'm going to cut down a bunch of your fucking trees and make some barrels. Instead of, instead we're going to make some money, guys. We're going to make some money. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're good. Well, it's funny. So the, um, so the gross national happiness model, it, it's a little bit complicated. I think there's four pillars and then there's like seven principles or something like that. Um. But when you look at the process of making wine, like we mapped it back to the mm -hmm. pillars and it maps back to almost all of them. It's like, right. we want to be socially conscious. We want to be community driven. We want to be, you know, environmentally sustainable. We want to be like, okay, like wine does all this. Um, so yeah, it was, if, you know, if one of the big guys wants to get this game and you're talking to the boonies, it'd be fucking be my guest, man. But <laughs> But take take some counsel and coaching. You you may want to approach it with a little bit more uh, caution and in, in, in well, a little more just understanding of the culture than just hey, look, I got a, I got a way we can make a million dollars. The Western attitude is not going to connect. There's what you may be saying there. That's uh, they're not a they are they want to evolve as a society mm -hmm. and they recognize that their success as a country is not remaining mired in the past. But they're like. We don't know that it does our citizens any any good. It doesn't make them any happier if there's a Starbucks on every corner. I don't know that it makes any. <laughs> does it make anybody happy that there's a Starbucks on every corner besides the shareholders? It when I'm dying for coffee, which I am often, right? And I'm not a fan of Starbucks coffee, but you know what? It's there. I'm gonna I'll take it over. Coffee. I'll take it over like a McDonald's coffee or coffee. I don't know, but th there's been some times when that like you know twelve hour gas station, twelve hour old jet gas station coffee was exactly what I needed to not uh, fall asleep uh, behind the wheel of a car. So sometimes that's what connects, you know. Oh but, uh, yeah, like, I, I've had more than my fair share of the the, the twenty four. Like you roll into the AM PM and they like they have the coffee thing that's like the size of a big gulp, and you're like, I'm doing that, and it's yep. dinner, and you're like, yep. And they're like, hey, that coffee's been there for a long time. And I'm like, even better. That means it may have just kind of reduced down even more to where I get to almost a, a black tar consistency. You know, something that is uh, dark, bitter, and hateful, sort of like my soul. This is the coffee, <laughs> coffee that I need to keep me awake. You know, If, you, if you're not chewing it, it ain't coffee. It's the it's so it's that that scene. I don't know if you've seen the movie Hidalgo, um, but he's talking about Turk. It's he's the, the Viggo Morton's character's talking to a, um, I think it's a. Uh, a Turkish Sultan or something. And he says, you know, we know our coffee's good. Whenever you put a horseshoe in it, it stands up straight. Right. Oh, that's when they know their coffee's good. I'm like that, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Um, so we're, I, we're actually, still, I've not seen that movie. Actually. I love Vigo Morkins. And that's the horse movie. He's like a horse racer guy. Yeah, he, he He's a horse racer from the United States. And there's this like, you know, endurance horse race that occurs. And I don't remember what country it was in. 
Um, but one of the one of the people that was uh, that had a horse in the race as well was a Turkish guy, and he was making Turkish coffee specifically. Uh, and they were kind of talking about the difference between, you know, because this is set in you know pseudo Western times. It's like, oh, this is the difference between cowboy coffee and Turkish coffee. You know, like that's what they were kind of going at. Is that is it a good movie? Should I watch it? It's it's a good movie, especially if you're like a if you're a horse person, which I mean, uh, you're into you know what. You're into endurance racing or endurance type uh, running. You're into hot rods. You're into thrills. So yeah, probably you probably. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, but you got to remember, I'm a skate punk from Southern California who grew up at the beach. <laughs> like, I, I've seen a horse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like at, at, at the local zoo. But, gotcha. But uh, you, you know, I, I didn't. Climbing on one is not a thrill that you've you've chased down yet. Well, so actually, I. It's funny. Um, I was doing this thing with my kids when they were growing up. We would call it Adventure Week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was rules. The rules for Adventure Week is every day you had to do something that you had have never done before. And it had to be something that also was kind of a little bit scary. And yep. you could never do the same thing twice. And so we would map it out in advance. And so one year we were mapping out our our adventure week and, and we're brainstorming ideas. And, and, uh, one of my kids was like, we should go horseback riding. And I go, all right, let's put that on the list. And it made the list for that year. And so, uh, one year we, we ran out, went out and we rented horses and we did like the most, you know, benign trail ride through like this, this sort of thing. And, uh, and so I have ridden a horse is the bottom line. I mean, that's, that's, I'm I'm no fucking rookie. Like I did that one thing in adventure week with my kids. <laughs> You're ready to go, right? No, I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm in the same place. You know, I've grown up around them, but I don't know. What to, my wife was, you know, like one of the. I'm on the equestrian team in college. Those kind of people. Oh, so shit. she's she's a skilled horse but horse person. I don't know what the term is. Horsewoman, whatever. I, I'm I am absolutely not. Um, but they're. I don't know. They're scary. So you, you said you, you said a word in there. You said you grew up punk rock, right? So you're in a band. Yeah. So is it so the band is Ink and Decibel? Is this is this, is this correct? Yeah. So I've been I've been I've, I've played playing in punk bands for many many years. So the current mm-hmm. band that I play in is Ink and Decibels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I mean, I went out and I think I found the right one. Um, is there a female vocalist for this band? Yeah. Enjoyed the shit out of it. Just enjoyed the shit out of it. I, I love. Um, I get into phases when it comes to music where like I'm listening to one genre and that one genre almost explicitly for like three months. And then I'll move to another one where, so maybe it's hip hop, maybe it's Americana, maybe it's, you know, classic rock, maybe it's punk rock, maybe it's whatever. You you never know what it's going to be. But about a year and a half ago, I got back into that, you know, for like six straight months, it was just like punk rock music. And it was mainly because of, of a group called the idols, which you may or may not know. Um, They put out an album and I'm like, I forgot all about loving punk rock music until that moment. And I listened to it, and it was and the it fucking was idols. Uh, by the way, I, I not only do I know the idols, I've seen the idols live. Um, <laughs> so uh, they're they're coming close by here in September, and I've got one of my one of my friends from college. I'm like, we should go to this, but dude, I also you should go to that, that show. It's fucking like they are amazing live. I will acknowledge say we're like, go ahead. Their last album was kind of fucking garbage, though. <laughs> So that was that was that was that was absolutely on the question list. I was like, so the the, the album before that was fantastic. But some people shift dynamically in how they perform, right? They 
change their genre. They do something different, but man, that one just did not connect with me. So that's what gave me pause on like, if the whole show is that album, I don't know that I want to go. Yeah. There's a cool documentary actually on the idols. Um, I think it's, it's either on Netflix or, or uh, Amazon. That's worth a watch. I think it's called, we will not go gently. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my, the thing I fucking love about them is they're like this kind of raw hardcore band, but their messages are all about like love and peace and love your fellow. And like, it's, it's yeah. the juxtaposition of the message and the delivery method that just makes them kind of unique. And I don't yeah, it's like they, they stop, they stop the severe mosh pit that's happening in front of the stage because somebody fell down. Like, pick them up off the ground. Now you can go back to punching each other. Like, yeah, we're here yeah. out of love. Do whatever you want. But, oh, like, help the person, too. Like, it's it's the perfect explanation, at least for me, of um, punk rock specifically. And, you know, I, I've got a I've got an 11-year-old and I've got an 8-year-old. But whenever um, I first started getting back into it, I was sitting in the living room. And I was like, hey, you know, I my wife I was like, we're going to watch this music video. And it's the... the uh, music video for, for mother. And he's just like, he's just smashing knickknacks the whole time. Like, you know, these little China things or whatever. And my youngest daughter comes in and she's like, what is this? And I was, this is a song. She's like, this is what I'm talking about. I'm like, Oh, like, <laughs> I love it. But also I have concerns because if it's seven years old, you're connecting with punk rock music where you just want to smash things. Like what's the teenage years going to look like? Probably pretty rough for you, my friend. It'll be one exciting ride. I, you know, I, I've, I've said a number of times this child is either going to um, lead a boardroom or a prison gang. And either way, she's going to be leading. <laughs> either way, she's in charge. Either way, she's right. Yeah. 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 So so we, we've talked a little bit about the idols. You, you, your band is is really good. What's what's the punk band that nobody's talking about that everybody should be? Well, um, so one of my favorite bands of all time, um, and I think is a band who is completely relevant and totally overlooked is the damned. Okay. Um, and so you, you know, you think about the damned. So the damned is well known as being the first releasing the first punk album ever in 1976, mm-hmm. the first punk single new rose. And ironically, when uh, we talked a little bit about Ink and decibels, our last album we released, and it was the first punk rock album ever released as an NFT so I came across that as well. And uh oh, yeah, yeah. So but the re- so but the limited issue of of um 176 was mm-hmm. in homage to the dam's original release in 1976. But but so I think why the dam get overlooked is specifically to your point, as bands evolve, like they do different shit. Mm-hmm. Um and so you know they have this range of of styles from melodic to goth to to um to really kind of more hardcore stuff to, um, you know, really meaningful lyrics to just stupid lyrics. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, you can't put them in a box. And I think because of that, they, um, they never really developed. They only developed a fan base of people who sort of got that, but the people right. that were looking for like the hardcore oil, they're like, Oh, well this new album's got fuck these guys. Or the goss were like, Oh, I love this album. And then the next album was fucking hardcore. And they're like, ah, Fuck these guys. Right. So, um, and the good news about that is that means that they're still broke. So they still <laughs> tour. Um, so I, I, hey, I look, you're, you're not wrong. That's, I was, I, they came to, uh, to SoCal and I was hanging out with them backstage at the house of blues and, and, uh, shooting the shit with, uh, with them. But I, that's a band I've seen 
um, in concert, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 times. They always, they always over deliver. It's one of those bands where I don't care what mood I'm in. If I want to like chill the fuck out or if I want to amp the fuck up or if I, I want to go for a run and I need something on my playlist to make me run, there's a damn song that I can use. And I it, can't it, say it'll that connect about, someone, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say that about, about uh, enough, you know, other bands, you know, like, you know, pick like no one's ever going to go, like, I need to chill out. You got any Megadeth? <laughs> you know, or, right. You got any Slayer? I need. I just need to chill for a little bit. Yeah, they, 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 nobody's clamoring for the Slayer um, acoustic album. You know, unplugged. You know, no, no, unplugged no, 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 Slayer. No. Nobody's after that. Although Slayer. I will say, and it, this is sort of in the same vein. Like one of the best MTV unplugged albums ever is Corn's unplugged album. I, uh, without a doubt. Holy shit! I didn't even know about that. Yeah, they did one, and there's, this, did there's an, unplug, this, an MTV unplugged. They did an MTV unplugged. It's fantastic, and then there's this medley that they do um, of a um, oh shit, I can't remember the name of the song now. Anyways, they they pull somebody that was one of uh, Jonathan Davis's like favorite musicians whenever he was growing up, and they do this medley of their song and his song mashed together, and it is it's it's fantastic i mean they're 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 serious musicians whatever i mean like this is sorry this is this is, ten, oh, no. this is, I, this is a tangent I, that happens it's, I, it's I, one I'm of the best. i'm already googling it to try to find it because yeah sounds, you li- listen to it end awesome. to end it's fantastic you know like uh i you know i'm i'm a, about 10 years younger than you and so i hit right into the grunge phase like you know punk was on its way out but it grunge was when everybody was connecting and so when you yeah. talk about you know unplugged albums everybody's talking about nirvana like that's the you know that's the the top of the top but man this was about i don't know 10 ish years after that nirvana album and it is it's fantastic in my opinion i gotta check it out do you know the band dinosaur jr at all yes yes i do I do. It, it's, you, have, have you heard Jay Massis' uh, acoustic solo album? <laughs> if you're nope. if, if you're into that shit, you might want to check this out. It's called Martin and Me because he plays a Martin guitar. Jay Massis, Martin and Me. So it's all Dinosaur Junior songs, but sung in like a coffee shop. Like I, literally, I think it was in a coffee shop they recorded it. It's okay. it's it's one of my you know probably top twenty albums of all time. It's it's I think it's just fucking spectacular. Well, that's that's on the list now. So I've got the damned, and now I've got J Mask's uh, acoustic album. See, this is this is this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm <laughs> we, uh, we came on to talk about bourbon, and we ended up talking about like acoustic punk rock albums from you know the nineties. You, you never know. Like, well, I mean, uh, we were talking about Australian single malt on Monday night, and we ended up talking about mental health for thirty minutes. You know, so you, you just don't know what's going to happen. But, but I, I feel like like um, you're surprisingly well-rounded from a music perspective and i and i don't mean this to sound pejorative but you live in fucking kentucky i would have imagined that you're kind of you know (laughs) so i I had the advantage of georgia line or whatever the fuck country shit is going on down there i had the advantage of growing up in a radio station my dad um whenever he was in college uh he was you know he's he's the guy that grew up like the beatles fan and then he moved into pink floyd and he did all of these things and so we always had a wide array of music available to us uh, whenever I was a kid and then he worked in a radio station selling uh, radio advertising whenever I was real, real young. And so I would go and sit in with a, a, a DJ you know, while he was still running tapes. Like they were running tapes at that no point. Shit. Not like, not like, you know, the tapes, but they were more like an eight track type thing that radio yeah. stations would use. And so I would go in and just sit and I learned a lot of things there, but I learned an appreciation of like all music types. Uh, 
if it was a country music song that was made after 1993, I'm probably not invested. But anything before that, I'll give it a listen because there was something that existed there. But aside from that, there's not a genre that I won't um, listen to, like that I won't appreciate. You know, because it's, it's music, man. Music is music. Music is music. It's yeah. it's it's formative. It's it's. It, well, it's like wine in a, in a sense. It's like this community experience that like, yep. you, I guarantee you there's songs that you know that like the first time you heard them, you're like, oh, what the fuck is it? I remember the <laughs> first time I heard NWA. Growing up. And, and we had, so I grew up in Southern California, right? And, uh, and so we used to drive up to uh, the LBC to get like mixtapes and we had gotten the Easy e mixtape. And, and um, straight out of Compton came out and we heard about it. We drove up to the hood and we got the tapes and we were listening to it on the way back in the car. It was me and my buddy Kenyatta. And we're, mm-hmm. I, I was driving my shitty Mazda 626 and we got the NWA straight out of Compton in the car. And we're driving and I pulled over into the emergency lane on the freeway and we just looked at each other and went, are you fucking kidding me? Did they just say that? Holy shit. And so, so it, it is one of those things where, where it, it, it is, it has the music, I think has the power to connect against into this primal brain. Mm-hmm. You know, like back in the day, what were we doing for 50,000 years? We made fires. We sat outside, we beat on shit and we sang and we fucked right. and we drank like homebrew. It, 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 it's a primal connection that exists. And so this is maybe the easiest way to kind of tie up in a moderately neat bow my musical taste. The first CD that I ever purchased was the soundtrack to Natural Born Killers. Have you seen the movie <laughs> Natural Born Killers? Of course. With Woody Harrelson. So, it's fucking awesome. Right. So in that album i I had to pull up this the 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 musicians list is a leonard cohen song there's patty smith there's bob dylan there's nine inch nails there's cowboy junkies there's patsy klein there's dr dre there's the dog pound like and and there's more like there's more that's in here but this is that was the first like super transformative album that ever bought because it had everything yeah, it was like there's Patsy Cline and Nine Inch Nails on the same album. It's just missing Tom Waits, and you'd have pretty much every fucking genre known man. Like, yeah, it's it's it, it's just and like Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's on here, you know, and it, it it's a song that Bob Dylan doesn't really do anywhere else. You know, it, it's anyways. That's where my musical tastes sort of lie. That, that's and, a that's a great analogy. Like, my, my my musical taste is the Natural Born Killers soundtrack. Yeah, and and it's and it's largely stayed that way because there's a good a good wine, a good whiskey, a good live show. All of those things can be pivotal pivotal in your life. Period. Like you can just it's oh, an experience. I guarantee you, you've got your top five concerts. You know exactly what they are. You don't have a top concert if you've been to enough concerts. No, there's no. I don't think that there can be, and that's you know, that's the same thing. Is like you can't have a top wine. You may have right. a top wine experience. You may have an experience. You can say, I, you know, all the way through from end to end, this one experience was it. But you can't have a top wine. You can't have a top whiskey. Anytime I say, like, what's your bet? What's your favorite whiskey? Okay, what's the price point? What's the mood? What's the thing I'm trying to do? Like, there's yeah. too many things to kind of tie in there. 
Um, but I can point to like the single time that I had probably the best whiskey experience of my life. Um, and it just was a connection of the people that I was around, the thing that I was drinking, the experience that was curated for us, like the whole thing. Like it was just, it, it's, it's something. And thinking about how musicians put together set lists, it's like, and I don't think m modern musicians do this anymore, but crafting the order of play on an album was important to a band at a point in time, right? They were trying to create an experience from beginning to end, especially in the era of tapes before you could skip ahead easily, right? Just a regular old tape. You just listen to it end to end. And anytime I listen to new music, I try to listen to it from beginning to end to see, is this person trying to take me on an acoustic journey of some type, you know? Well, so, so to that end, I will tell you, when we decided we were going to release a punk rock album as an NFT, the idea that I had is most of the other, I, I think we are actually the first people to do this, but I don't know it for a hundred percent. Most of the other albums that came out that were NFTs, you mm -hmm. would get like artwork and a download code that would let you download yeah. some shit from like Spotify or whatever. We said, no, we're going to take the approach that we want it to be more like a, a, you know, if Pearl Jam is coming out with a new album, they also mm -hmm. release a hundred editions on vinyl that you can buy that are signed by the band. And, and that's, that's yeah. its own special thing. And so the way that we built the NFT, we actually had to downgrade the quality a little bit because you need it to be under a, a hundred megabytes really to, to work well on the blockchain. Right. Um, but it's a continuous play. It's one continuous file um, with spaces between the songs and you click on it and it just plays like an album. And you, yeah. And it, that's, it's it's a vinyl record album even though you could pick the needle up and move it but you'd never get it exactly right it's a it's a it's a tape it's a thing that most generation or most modern generations don't get anymore because they're into singles they're into pick up a song and you know put together a spotify playlist it's the next arrow and you absolutely well, I mean, like that's that's the thing. Like, it spotifies the thing, and so you create a playlist that is a single song from like four hundred different bands, right? Mm -hmm. So you never get an idea of the identity of that particular musician. The musician doesn't have to necessarily have to craft one, and maybe that's what they prefer. But I don't know. I mean, that's that's the place where maybe uh, us old folks are are connecting with music. In well, a so, way so the, kids the point of all this is we had we had band arguments for months. <laughs> About on what, what, what was going to go next going to be and then we yeah. finally settled on it and not everyone was happy with it but no it was, but, it, but is it what it needed to be and that, that's what it boils down to I, from my perspective yes like i think the way <laughs> so you won the argument is that what you're saying like you won the argument on how it should i won be? the argument yeah yeah and so the, <laughs> the way we started was, is we took we took the song that was the most different stylistically and mm -hmm. you, we made it first. So you <laughs> you're like, okay, cool. I know what this band's all about. And then the next song is was the the most stylistically opposite to the to the first song. We made that second with the idea mm -hmm. that you're, you're like, okay, I know what this band's about. And then you go to the second song, you're like, wait, what the fuck? Oh shit! Now where are we going? And then and, and then we we built it up from there. And then we ended with the the song that I thought was sort of the probably my favorite lyrically song on the album, but also mm -hmm. the most simplistic from a musical perspective. So I agree. There, there was a lot of thought put into this and with our previous album, there wasn't, it was just like, here's the fucking songs, whatever. 
Right. And that, I mean, I think if, if, if you're trying to, to create kind of a, a new experience, you're looking at an NFT of a punk album. I think that's the, the way you have to do it. Right. Like you, you put the first song first and then the second song sounds nothing like the first song because the entire idea is that you shouldn't necessarily approach it with a preconceived notion of what it's going to be. That's uh, right. That's that's sort of what punk at least has been in my mindset for a long time is that it can sound about 10 different ways and that's okay. That's what the point of it is. Oh yeah. I mean, you think about like back in the day, here are some bands that were called punk blondie, the talking heads, the dead Kennedys, uh, Devo. Like they, yep. they were all very, very different. And the, the whole point was it's, you're you're basically saying I'm doing something different, and that's punk. Um, yeah. and but the, 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 the Talking Heads is the one that got me back into punk uh, a couple of years ago. At, at the same time that the Idols hit, there was a movie that came out that huh. put in the Utopia. Um, so it's got Psycho Killers in it. This by, oh. by the Talking Heads, yeah. and I hadn't heard that song in probably 20 or 25 years. Like I, I, I know I'd heard it before, but I just hadn't heard it. And it connected at a different level, which was not necessarily a punk song from them. But then when you start kind of digging in, you know, then like you dig in like, Oh, okay, well here's where their origins of the mu- of the band were. Let's get the albums. Let's start listening to stuff. And then I'm like, Oh, well, what's happening in punk now? And so now it's the idols are here. And I'm like, Oh, well there's a new band that exists because you know, uh, up until then, punk was defined by, you know, Green Day or by um, Blink-182, which can be fun. Or Sum 41 or that whole sort of 90s. I, I didn't. I did, oh, no, I wasn't going to mention Sum 41 or Good Charlotte. I was going to um, leave them out of the conversation altogether. Have you seen American Utopia? I have not. Okay, so. You're giving you, me a list of things here. Hold on. You, you need to put that on the top of the fucking list. And you need to watch that tonight. You need to bang up Amazon Prime and you need to watch, get some bourbon and sit there and watch American Utopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can thank me fucking later. Okay. That's all I'm saying. It, it, it's, it's right here. It's on, it's on the absolute list, but yeah, that was the talking heads was 100% on this list of people to talk about because that is, uh, it's one of the bands that are currently classified in that punk realm, but I don't ever remember this that. Book is on my desk right now. Mm-hmm. It's literally within arms reach me right now. <laughs> I don't have any music books within the arm reach, but they're back here. I got to. Well, the, the, only reason I do, the only reason I do is because I was reading it on the plane uh, when right. I was traveling last week. And then uh, when I got home, I took it out of my computer back there and set it on my desk. So it's not like I have a stack of music books here. I just, but I do happen to have that one. And it is David Byrne. So, like, right. I mean, he's a fucking cool cat. He's an interesting guy. I don't know that I would want to have a glass of wine with him. I think you can have a glass of wine with anybody once, right? Like you can at least check that box off and say, well, I've done it. I may not do that again, but I did it. That's, that is true. I I am sure if David Byrne uh, DM'd me and said, Mike, swing by my place next time you're in New York, we're going to have, I want to talk to you about some wine. I would be like, are you fucking kidding? I'm a hundred percent. You have to, like, you can't say no to that. You gotta, you gotta answer the call, but you know, it may not be the, all the things you wanted it to be. What's 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 interesting to me is is going back to the whole wine experience thing, and and I and I mm-hmm. truly believe that wine is something that is meant to be shared. Like you rarely hear people talking about like, oh, I had this great bottle of wine, so I went home and I drank it all by myself. Right? <laughs> it's, it's always like this community sort of sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and what I would say is, is having had these wine experiences with people all around the world in every continent, including Antarctica, <laughs> to be honest, um, what I found is that the, the ones that you thought were going to be awesome were not necessarily awesome. The mm -hmm. ones that you like just stumbled into ended up being spectacular. Like I remember we went to this, this one, and I won't say the guy's name, but uh, we went to this one celebrated cult winemaker in uh, Australia. And, um, and he, I had been emailing him for months. So I'm coming down there. We're going to go there. And so we show up, he shows up 30 minutes late. He shows up, he goes, he looks like he slept in a gutter. And he goes, I was up all night drinking. Um, we're, uh, I'm super hungover, but I committed to do this to you. So I'm sorry I'm a little bit late, but come on in. And he even said, I apologize for looking like I slept in a gutter. He went in, he, <laughs> we went into his basement and he, he laid out plastic folding lawn chairs and he laid down on one and he threw a giant hunk of prosciutto on the table and opened up 10 bottles of wine and said, Guys, just enjoy yourself. Ask me questions if you need me. <laughs> and he laid down on the thing. We sat in this basement on plastic lawn chairs, slicing chunks of pig off of a fucking haunch of pig and drinking wine out of, and it was like this epic, like everyone that was there mm -hmm. still talks about that shit. Like, right. I believe that that was fucking awesome. Matter of fact, <laughs> we, this is, this was like at least six or seven years ago. And on, What's today, Friday? So on Tuesday, I was at my friend's house and he still had a bottle of wine that we had bought from that guy. And we opened it and we took a photo of it and we texted it to everybody that was there that night. Going like, hey, like that's how like, you remember this? Remember this? And then and then of course, you know, the text chain's like, oh shit, remember that? Like we were Yep. It was fucking awesome. Yeah. And th those are the, that's, you know, like I bought the four bottles with the intent, you know, my wife has a coworker that it, she, she likes to drink wine as well. Her husband likes to drink wine. I'm like, we'll we'll get together. He's a big scotch guy. I've got some scotch samples. I've got some wine. We'll get together. We'll drink these things together and see what it's about. You know, like learn about a new uh, varietal of wine that none of us have ever had, you know, the Neb Nebbio, Neb whatever it was, you Nebbiola. said it earlier. Yeah. Nebbiola. There you go. That one. Uh, we, we, we picked this up. Like none of us have ever tried this before. We'll, we'll try it together and we'll either hate it together or love it together. But even when you try something that is terrible, that can still be a fun experience. Like I've drank some truly awful things. I was um, at an event with some friends and um, there was a distiller that was making their own smoky peated whiskey here in the United States uh, using their own ingredients. And it was not good, but, the environment of us all sort of tasting it at the same time. It's very much the, Oh my God, this is terrible. You try this. Right. And then we're all passing it around. And, you know, a few minutes later, a, a man pops up that uh, sometimes he ends up in the chat here or not, but he, he had brought some snack. He lives in Hawaii. He brought some snack cakes. He's like, oh, we'll pair some stuff. He brought some durian fruit snack cakes. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Which sort of smells and tastes like hot garbage. Like, yeah. It was just, durian, it was durian, durian tastes and smells like eating a fart. Exactly. It, but, but there's, there's a communal experience. Everybody was together. It doesn't have to taste great for it to be fun. Uh, it just makes it better when it does. Like when it tastes good and everybody's having a good time, um, things go well. But, but I think like for me, I, I get less hung up on the outcome. Um, mm -hmm. Like I want the experience and, and I want the experience to be meaningful. And if it is fucking great. 
see that could be that could be the story of my college career right there. I'm more interested in the experience than I am the outcome. You know, lots <laughs> of people go to college for 10 years. Um, they're usually called doctors, but sometimes they just get their bachelor degree or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, but yeah, that's you, the, you could, you could drag, you could drag a four year degree out to 10 years. If you try hard enough. I did. That's no, that wasn't a joke. Like it, that's the, the, the punchline is that was the truth. You know, it's, it's the type of thing where I went back to get my MBA explicitly to prove like, I can do an education on a normal time frame with good grades. Like it didn't necessarily benefit me greatly in my career path, but I was like, look, kids, dad had, they didn't have like an unordinately good time in college, but I had a lot of fun experiences, met a lot of interesting people, uh, traveled to some places, did some fun things. You know, I just stretched it out and changed my major like 47 times, you know, like anybody might do, but I could also, go to school. Like I, I can do this. So, you know, let's, let's go get an MBA to prove that spend a bunch of damn money just to prove a point. But you know, that's hey, what money's for, right? Hey, you're talking to a guy who teaches in a business school. Like I, I, I understand that the, the MBA process. Yeah. And it is, you know, a college degree is a college degree an MBA is an MBA. Um, it's a thing to be proud of, but uh, I'll take the experiences that I had over the course of my education uh, as, as, an I, even I, marking of education. I think I respect experiences more than I expect initials. Yeah. I would much rather hang out and drink wine with the guy who has cooler stories to tell than the dude that just tells me about. So then I followed the recipe exactly. And then I, I graduated and my SATs were great. And I got into a good school and I joined all the right clubs and I did that. Like, <laughs> all right, cool. Well, you're we'll in luck because I'm not that guy. Yeah, I'm not that guy. <laughs> right. I, I tell you, I tell you what. Why, why don't you go back to your country club, and I'm going to go play some punk rock drums with my friends, and then maybe get in a fight, <laughs> and uh, and then drink some wine, and you know. Yeah, the country club makes me feel uncomfortable. It just, it just does. I was, I was at an event um, last week for work, staying at a very much country club country club type like beautiful grounds. You know, I had a nice stone wall all around the facility, a hotel event type location that it was pretty exclusive and i walked in i was like these are not my people like i can i can be here i'm not gonna you know i didn't show up with no shoes and you know missing teeth you know not not a uh, inbred redneck or anything but like this is this is not it for me it's a beautiful place i appreciate being here but so i i, I lived in i'm 52 i just turned 52 mm-hmm. i lived in california southern california my entire life uh, until about four weeks ago when I, I moved to the East Coast. And so where I lived prior to moving was in a very um, exclusive enclave in Orange County. And you would know it because that is where the Real Housewives of Orange County started. And that gotcha. is launched the whole thing. And of course, mm-hmm. it was a country club. And so uh, I like playing golf. Um, but I kind of don't give a shit about all the rest of the stuff. So I'm like, and, but it's literally, it's like, it's a two minute drive from my house. So I joined the country right. and, uh, and so they have this rule that you have to wear a collared shirt when you play golf and, uh, and it has to be tucked in. And mm-hmm. I am, uh, I have two, I have two speeds. I have tailored suits or I have punk rock t-shirts. I don't have anything in between. I don't have fucking golf shirts, but yeah. they're like, you have to have this if you're going to play here. So I go, okay, fine. So I went on Etsy and I commissioned a whole bunch of different collared shirts, but I have one with a dead Kennedy's logo. I have one with a giant <laughs> turkey sign. <laughs> so, so I'm showing up and I, I'm literally, and the, and the guy's like, 
It's the rule, and I followed it. I followed the rule. Yeah, that's a dead Kennedy sign. What are you gonna do about that? Uh, (laughs) I appreciate that. That like you find the rule and you find the way to exploit it um, because you don't necessarily agree with it, but you still follow. You still follow it, but you're not following the intent of the rule. I I am absolutely not following the intent of the rule. And actually, if if there was if there was a way to you know. to to not follow it, I, I would absolutely not follow. But I'm like, all right, cool. If this is the cost of playing golf, that, that can almost be more fun. Like the 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 following the rule, but not. Oh being no! It, it, oh, it's that, it's, it's it, yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah, I mean, it's the same way that you start a blog just because you read uh, somebody's review on a particular wine that you completely disagreed with. Like you know, yeah, you, you launch fuck. a book on it, like fuck you, you know, I, right, I can do this. <laughs> and but I think there there's this other piece that like. In today's society, and you see this, I'm sure, there's like, oh, somebody, you know, posts something that you don't agree with. So you just start flaming them, you know, and you blow them mm-hmm. up online, like anonymously. That's bullshit. Like, I didn't do that. I was like, I disagree with this. So what I'm going to do is start a worldwide phenomenon over here that is counter, you know, has a counter argument. I, I, I never, I and, I and I won't, and I don't ever like mention who it was that wrote this book and what book it was. Right. Specifically because I'm like, I'm not trying to blow that person up. That was their opinion. Right. I have a different opinion. And so they're allowed, they're allowed to have their opinion. They're allowed to be wrong. It's okay. They can be wrong with their opinion. It's fine. Yeah. They can be wrong. And, and, and rather than telling them they're wrong, I'm just going to go out and, and promote a counter opinion. You're going to prove them to be wrong. You're not going to tell them. You're just going to prove that they are wrong uh, just by being better at what they were doing than they were to, to begin with. That's the hope. All right, I'm trying to. I got to go back to my notes here and see what else I have left on the on the um, on the calendar here. Hot rods, cars. Ah. You're you, hot rods and car. You're into this. So, are we talking about like classic hot rods, or are we talking about like uh, tuner cars or imports? Like, what are we talking about here? So, I I'm a motorhead. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I have many vehicles that span a lot of genres. Um, the, the hot, the last hot rod that I built, um, was a 1931 Ford Roadster. Okay. But what I did was I, I built a bare metal car that was art deco. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much every piece on the car is custom fabricated, um, with a lot of brass and a lot of wood. So it's very art deco, but at the same time, it's very stripped down raw it's like steampunk meets art deco and it's Mm -hmm. and actually this is another one of those things where (laughs) brilliant idea didn't think through all the practical fucking considerations but um turns out bare metal cars if they get the slightest bit of moisture they start to rust Rust. you gotta fucking like scrub the rust off constantly Uh, was this on the west coast Were were you still on the west coast when you did this car yeah yeah i mean uh so it's so, not just moisture, but it's like salty air too. Yeah. I mean, for me, where I live was about probably seven miles inland from the beach. So I would, okay. and I was in a little valley. Gotcha. So we really wouldn't get the salt air, but um, we definitely would get like dew and stuff. So mm-hmm. you just got to stay on top of it. And over time, the metal develops the patina, mm-hmm. um, but you still got to stay on top of it. What's funny is, so I mentioned I just moved. So I shipped all my vehicles out here in, in trailers. And when 
the trailer showed up with the hot rod. Um, I took it out of the trailer um, and I moved it in, into the garage. And, and that distance was about, well, I don't know, a thousand feet maybe. Mm -hmm. But when I took it out, it was misting. And I'm like, oh shit, it's fucking misting. And so I like pulled the shirt I was wearing off and I like tried to rinse off the car or walk, you know, dry it off as best I could. Yeah. And then I went back like two days later and you could see like these big swirls of rust forming where you could see where, where I missed it. Uh -huh. um, so, so that car is pretty awesome. Um, it was, we, I conceived it with um, this designer named Bugs and then we built it by Hollywood Hot Rods who's, mm -hmm. who's built some pretty, you know, award-winning cars. And it's, it's fucking dope. I have like really cool pictures of like car shows where, there's 12 cars and my car's at one end and there's 40 people around my car and nobody at the other 11. Um, <laughs> so I have that. And then back to your tuner question, like my son and I are restoring a 1971 240Z right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, I've got that and then I've got some, some newer cars that uh, like I've got a 911 that, uh, you know, it's pretty sporty. I got a Continental GT that's, you know, pretty sporty. So it's, it sort of runs the gamut. Same with motorcycles. I have, I have everything from a 1964 cafe racer that we're restoring to like a Aprilia Tuono. So yeah, the, the, the cafe racer, that's, that's my like retirement purchase. I, um, I rode motorcycles a very little bit before I got married. And then when we had kids, my wife was like, no motorcycle until the second kid gets into college, right? Like, let's make sure that you're still here to help pay for them. Um, so it, it it's the thing, you know, it's, we sort of do life backwards. I was, I was talking about this with one of my coworkers where, you know, like we, we spend the middle part of our life, like raising children. And then when we get the free time to like go be adults is maybe when we're not necessarily in the best health, you know, like I'm 65 years old and riding a cafe race is probably not a good choice. It's not like a good look for me. I don't know but, about that. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, God willing, we're all 65 going, you know what? Fuck. Yeah. It's right. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it, but like spending, you know, a couple of hours hunched over <laughs> yeah, might not be the most. Back, your back's gonna hurt a little bit more. Exactly right. But like 20 year old me is like, let's ride to Florida on this thing. You know, um, that's just sort of how we we do life. I mean, uh, I was kind of fortunate. I had my kids very early, mm -hmm. um, so you know, my kids have been aged out for shit. My youngest kid is will be 23. You know, so they aged out a long time ago. But, but to your point, like, you know what sucked? My 20s. Right. So, like, all my friends are like, we're all going to Vegas this weekend. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm changing diapers on a three-year-old and a one-year-old. What are you guys, you know, I go have fun. But now it seems like a genius move. So, sort of like, yeah. when do you want your pain, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the, and the, and the other side of it is, is that, I didn't have the money at 20 to do the fun things that I'm going to want to do whenever I'm 60. And so maybe I need, you know, maybe that's the way it needs to be so I can um, build up the resources. But so what, do, what do you do for a living? Like th these are all different ventures. Like you've got you, your hands in a rum company, you, you, you write books, you are working on a wine company. Um, you have some pretty fun hobbies, but like, what do you do? Like, how do you fund your adventure? If you're allowed to talk about it. No, 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 to totally. So I, I work for a big four consulting firm. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm a partner in a, in a big four consulting firm. I've been there 27 years. Um, and I convinced them a couple of years ago that we should um, 
have a wine consulting arm and that I should run it. And for some reason they, they thought that was a good idea. So I basically uh, figured out a way to get paid big corporate money to go hang out at wineries, mm-hmm. which is literally, uh, sometimes I sit back and I go, fuck, I won the corporate lottery. How did they agree to this? <laughs> but, well, uh, I, mean, I, I would suspect, I mean, if you're working for a big four consulting firm, um, you can convince them maybe to give you the job, but you don't convince them to keep the job if you're not successful, right? So y- you can be coy about, oh, I locked it. Like, I feel like you, well, you're good at what you do. No, I am, I am good at what I do. And, and I think the, the thing about it is, is, is over my career um, with the firm, um, I think my reputation has been find a niche and then build capabilities for us to service that niche that are creative um, and, and let's go do that. And so, you know, this is, I think the seventh one of these that I've done since I've been at the firm and we are, we are now the largest, um, wine. We are the largest provider of consulting services to the wine industry in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't just, uh, and you're right. I, I was, I wasn't trying to be quiet. I was trying to maybe be a little bit humble, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's, um, if, if you can, if you can prove the business model, if the business model works and it makes sense, fuck yeah, we're going to do it. And, and I was able to prove that and demonstrate it and it, and it, uh, and it works. So, but the, the off, the offshoot of that is that, yes, um, you know, my job is go hang out at wineries around the world, which is a fucking cool job. It's, oh, that's, absolutely. That's my fucking hobby, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> get paid to do it for work. Oh, fuck, I'm all in. But, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it has to make sense. And the thing about the wine industry is, uh, it's it's a niche that is relatively. I'm probably like I. I don't even know if I should be saying this on a fucking podcast, but it's relative. It's been relatively ignored by the larger firms because it's been perceived as small or private companies rather than public companies or whatever, and so. Um, it was just like us showing up and going like, yeah, you guys are important too. Let us help you. And we know what the fuck we're talking about. And so, you know, pr- pretty easy sell. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I could be wrong, but it feels like a lot of people have avoided spirits in general, whether it's wine or or whiskey at that point. But we're seeing more uh, companies push in there like, uh, um, you know, Pritzker uh, Financial just purchased a distillery, right? So the Pritzker family who is everything that they are um they're coming in like you're seeing these other people that are not the sazeracs and the the you know the the other you know diad diagios and the the spirits conglomerates there are people who have nothing to do with spirits now starting to show up um they're doing that wine they're doing that whiskey wherever else there's you know there's markets fucking uh Who's the like the young Kardashian girl and her eight one eight tequila or whatever the fuck it is? Yeah, yeah. Well, that so Kylie, those, Jenner, Kylie Jenner. You know, there's that. Yeah. Shit there, well, there's there's a number of even in within the whiskey industry a number of celebrity brands, but most most whiskey folks turn their nose up at celebrity brands because usually they'll go out and buy um, inexpensive whiskey from somewhere else, slap a label on it, move forward. There's very few that are legitimately invested in the long-term success of a company you know like terry bradshaw has his own whiskey now um but he actually wants it to be good and it's not expensive he's not cashing in on his name and i mean i don't know how much you can cash in on the terry bradshaw name at this point um you get some football fans but it's not a kardashian at this point 
Um, but no, you, know, but you think you think about like like we see that in the wine space too. Mm-hmm. So like Brad Angelina buy a rose place in France. Okay, great. They put their name on it. But then you get Maynard from Tool, who, yep. who starts a winery in in this weird part of Arizona, and then goes out there and literally like is passionate like me. He's trying to figure out what fuck's going to work in Arizona. Mm-hmm. He's planting thirty five different varietals in a one acre vineyard to try to hone in on what it is, and he's the guy that's in there and digging it. Like I want to drink that guy's wine yep. way more than I want to drink. Lady Gaga's Dom Perignon collaboration, you know? <laughs> right. The, the, I guess maybe the only, the only caveat to the whole thing for me is I absolutely want to drink um, Lagavulin with Nick Offerman, right? <laughs> so he's, he's, got his, he's got his own bottle now. What? He, he, seriously? Yeah, he's, he's had two rounds of, of doing the Nick Offerman Lagavulin bottle. No um, shit. I didn't know about that. Lagavulin's my favorite scotch. Yeah, so he he's got his own. He, not, I guess it's not his own. I mean, it's still Lagavulin, but it's like the Nick Offerman edition. There's two of those that exist. Um, yeah, I, I I wanted, and it was explicitly out of him just being a huge fan of Lagavulin. Like he didn't want to start up a his own label or do anything. Like I'm just a huge fan, and they're like, cool. We'll throw your name on a, a label. We can do a blend. We'll do whatever. And that that's dude. one I'll take. Like he doesn't have a bunch of investment in it, but I'll take that. Holy shit, dude. We need to fucking organize a podcast with me, you, and Offerman drinking Offerman's Lagavulin. I've I've sent the emails to his team. I, I'm working on it, man. And, it, and if I get it, I'll I will reach out and be like, "Hey." Well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Like, I, I don't I don't have any connection with Offerman, but I have a fairly broad network. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw some emails out to the ether and see if we could fucking tee that. Cause I think that would be awesome. That's my favorite yeah. fucking scotch and Offerman is fucking hysterical. Yeah. He's got his own little podcast thing that he's doing right now. And like, just the, the character, you know, cause he gets somewhat popular from, from Ron Swanson, but that's not who he, like it is who he is, but it's also not who he is. Right. Like the, his, his identity is so different than that. I've read a couple of his books. He's just an interesting character all around. Yeah. Um, you know, like huge theater background, just yeah so he, he's on the list of people that he, he does he's got a celebrity brand but it's not like some of these other folks it's not like the, the kylie jenners or um what's the dude that played van wilder what's his name ryan reynolds he did the his own gin and george yeah, yeah and, and george clooney did uh was it a gin or oh, tequila or, well, vodka no, or something did tequila. so actually clooney's story i think is more along the mm-hmm. lines of like we were passionate we were doing this and we found we had something cool um, I think like the Conor McGregor whiskey is like, proper 12. It's, it is, that's the exact opposite of, yep. you know, that, that Which, is, that's the Kylie Jenner bullshit. I'm slapping my name on something and, and fuck it worked, right? Like he sold. That's what, yeah, I was gonna say, I, I can, I can more appreciate his because I don't feel like he went in with the intent to make something great. He went in with the intent to be a businessman and make money. And, and, and I don't. Works. And it worked and it worked amazingly. And it, you know, it's mediocre at best, right? It's, it's best. not, but it's not priced crazy either. Cause that's the other part you get into with celebrity brands. Sometimes they're like, throw their name on it, charge $200 for the bottle for something yeah. that should be 40 bucks or whatever, you know? And, and he didn't go that route. It was still a relatively inexpensive thing. And, you know, people who aren't whiskey fans are going to go out and buy it because they're a Conor McGregor fan. But at the end of the day, they got something you could drink. It's not like, you know, straight up swill. It's just not great. It's not good. Yeah. No, it's Sutter Home, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you were going to mix something with Coke and you wanted to pay, I, what's the retail on that? Like 18 bucks, maybe? 
it depends. It's somewhere between 18 and 25 bucks is, is yeah, what, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like we took the exact opposite approach with our rum company, which was mm -hmm. like, let's make something bitching. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, you know, we ended up with the world's highest rated rum, but, uh, you know, no one's throwing $800 million at us. To, to <laughs> Not yet. So Not yet. So that's because that's, that's what a lot of, a lot of, um, investors are trying to figure out what is the next bourbon, right? Because we're in a bourbon boom in the United States, right? We went yeah. from, you know, virtually trying to give away whiskey in the late nineties. Like you just couldn't get people to buy it to, um, bottles that should be $30 are going on black market sites for $500 yeah. right now. Like this is happening all the time. That's going to die off eventually. What's the next spirit category? And some folks are going the route of they think that it's going to be cognac or armagnac. And some people think it's going to be tequila. But I'm leaning probably on rum. Rum becomes the the next thing because it's more deeply seated in American culture than any other spirit realistically. Like, you know, if you go back to, you know, the Revolutionary War, like the rations that were given, rum. It was we had a lot of rum because... We didn't have. Rum is the highest things. consumed out spirit by volume in the world, mm -hmm. and it's it's not surprising because it's it's everywhere, you know. It, it, but that's where some people think it is it's going that route. To the end of some whiskey families are getting into rum, like they're they're starting up rum brands with the intent of trying to capture that market. And so you just may be ahead. You may be just like you know that's ten years ahead of everybody else. <laughs> I, 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 hopefully the the world uh what's funny is is like we have this this awesome rum right it's high, 95 points highest rated silver rum in history you know double gold medals everywhere um and dominant in southern california but I, I just don't have the time to like try to go take it and scale it at, everywhere at else a level a level and my partner and i so you know i have a i have a partner in it and he's in the mm -hmm. same boat. He's a corporate guy too. And we're like, we have this amazing product, but like neither one of us have the time to go make this work. Um, so it just, it just kind of chugs along and, and is well loved in Southern California, but mm -hmm. like, it, it just doesn't, it, there, there's not the time to invest in it to take it to the next level. It can, it can exist, you know, perpetually in its state. It sounds like it can exist perpetually yeah. in state. It'll just, it'll just, it'll just, it can exist forever. And it, like you go, you go to any bar in Costa Mesa or Newport beach mm -hmm. and you order a rum and Coke. It's a SoCal rum and Coke. That's yeah. That was, that was, I think you may have just marked off the, like the last thing that I had on here. I hadn't gotten back to the SoCal rum because you've got this quote on the website. that's just want to do epic shit with epic people. And <laughs> I don't have to ask a question around that because you've already covered that at length, you know, it's like, well, I don't need to ask the question, but so uh, how long is the run? Like, what got you to rum? Like, how did you get to rum? Just identifying market or? No, not at all. Actually, my, one of my best friends is like a huge, passionate rum guy. And my son is a huge, passionate rum guy. And, uh, and I could give a fuck about rum. Mm -hmm. And one day, actually, ironically, this was in Bhutan. Um, we were, we were sitting on this patio in Bhutan, my friend, and we just run the Bhutan marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the same day, actually. It was that evening. And we were sitting on the balcony or the, this patio after the marathon, having some drinks and looking out over this, the Panaka Valley and just like, just enjoying it. And my buddy Glenn goes out of nowhere, we should start a distillery. <laughs> and I go, what? Make, what? 
making what? And he goes, making rum. And I go, fuck that. Like, I don't want to make rum. And he goes, no, 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 no. Like, listen, like, we should just do it. It'd be cool. Mm-hmm. And I go, all right. Like, talk. But let's What's the case? How do we get there? And, and so he was like, hey, we're going to, we could, I drink Captain Morgan, but I think I could do it better. And I go, mm-hmm. well, that's fine, Glenn, but how many spice drums can you name? He's like, Captain Morgan, Sailor Jerry, Myers, whatever. And I go, okay, cool. Um, how many silver rums can you name? He's like, Bacardi. And I go, other than Bacardi. And he goes, none. And I go, why don't we just try to make a better version of Bacardi? Right. And rather than in- investing a bunch of capital in a distillery, um, why don't we focus on making a recipe that we can have somebody else make for us? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And so we we dicked around with this recipe for, I don't know, three or four years. And then we finally um, found something that we thought that we liked, like mm-hmm. this works. And so we made, we went to a, a production facility and we said, here's our recipe. Can you make this for us? They said, sure. They made it for us. And we tried it. We're like, this is awesome. Um, and so we submitted it to the um, San Francisco Spirits Competition, which you probably know, the biggest one in the world. And we, were, we just wanted to be like acknowledged. And they came right. back and like gold medal. We're like, holy shit. So then we took it to the SIP Awards, which we're like, all right, we got the critic side. Let's get the consumer's perspective. And the consumers mm-hmm. were like double gold. And so then we were like, let's submit it to the Ratings Institute and get a rating on it. They're like 95 points, highest silver rum ever. Um, we're like, oh, shit, we did it. (laughs) (laughs) That that is unexpected success. Like you you want it to be successful, but maybe that wasn't um, exactly how high you thought you were going to go. We did did not think we were going to get that. Like we just wanted to make something that was reasonable. And then we ended up making something that was awesome. And so they're like, we should sell it. So so we, you know, we started taking it out to the local marketplace and, and, um, and it was like, this is great. We love this. And, uh, and so we did that and, um, and kind of drew it to actually, there's a really interesting article, um, called the, called the, the rum that Paris Hilton pours at her house parties uh-huh. and how we got into the Hollywood scene and all of the, <laughs> like we were doing like all the movie premieres, all the, the, we were in a couple how, uh, episodes of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills oh, wow. um, at their parties, like it, it, and it became kind of a little bit of this kind of status status thing, which I really, I think, really helped the success of the brand in Southern California. But like I said, unfortunately, we we haven't had the time to really try to scale it nationally, which is what you would need to do if you were trying to do an equity event or some type of a of an exit strategy. And, right. and you know what? And fuck it, like like. I don't really care. I own the fucking highest rated silver rum company in the world. Whether, you know, and you don't have to do anything for it to stay alive. That, that's I don't like have to do anything for it to stay alive. It's fine. You know, could I make a hundred million dollars off of it if I wanted to go push it? Yeah, probably. Right. Or five hundred million, whatever the number is. But like for me, it's about doing epic shit with cool people. It's about finding happiness. It's mm-hmm. not about having money. You know, if I killed myself for the next five years and sold it for 800 million, would I be any happier? I don't know that I would be. 
Like I can go no. roll down to the local bar in Newport Beach and be like, ah, the fucking SoCal guys here. What's up, dude? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you have a sense of pride and ownership. You know, it's going back to this idea from 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 Bhutan of gross national happiness, right? Like you're you're living a life towards gross national happiness, and that's I, that's great. I mean, I made it. So I went through this really gnarly divorce, and I was married for eleven years, mm-hmm. and uh. And then I went into a divorce proceeding that lasted 13 years. So for any of your listeners who's thinking about getting married, don't do it in the state of California. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, you know, through that process, like I, I, I went through some pretty radical mind shifts where I, I sort of got to this point that was like, dude, stuff doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. like if you, if you can get stuff and you want stuff, like get it, like go build a weird 1931 hot rod, but don't do it right. because you think it's going to be worth a ton of money. <laughs> no, no one's going to mm-hmm. want to buy that thing. You're going to spend a ton of money on it. But, but if you want to do it, like if it brings you happiness and, and so stop worrying about shit and stuff and things and start worrying about like what brings me happiness and go do that. And, and so, you know what, if, if the SoCal rum company sold for a billion dollars tomorrow, or if it just chugged along sustaining life, I, I would be equally happy with either one of those outcomes. It's, mm-hmm. And to, to reach that, that state of mind, I mean, it took, it took getting the shit kicked out of me by the California family court system to realize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but overall I've become a much, I don't know, more grounded. I, I, it's just a happier person. Like I, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm more focused on the stuff that matters to me. And, and that's cool. That's a cool place to live. I think that's a, that's a thing we can all, I don't know that there's a better exit point in a conversation than that one. Um, what I, what I want, um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? No, I feel like we're, we, I just looked up at the little live feed. We've been on this thing for over two hours and I feel like, right. Been- yeah. Minutes, yeah, like, I'm, I'm nearing in on bedtime for children here uh, downstairs yeah. in a few minutes, but I could keep going. Like, I, and I think I think maybe in the same place where you know, it's, it's just a fun conversation. So it doesn't have to be the only one. We're going to get Nick Offerman on. We're going to drink some whiskey. We're going to talk to Nick Offerman. We're going to drink his whiskey specifically. It's going to happen. I'm going to we're going to uh, it may take the rest of the year, but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll try to connect that up because um, I can just be like, hey, you know, you, you want to join this this podcast uh, episode? I've got a guy who owns the most highest rated silver silver uh, uh, rum in the market, period. And and he's an author and he does adventure races and he started wine. Like he's far more interesting. You should come talk. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah, do let's this. go hang out. Like we're, right. we're interesting dudes. Let's go do some interesting shit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate you for joining me tonight. Like I said, we'll absolutely have to do this again. I'm anxiously awaiting the 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 first release of of the wine from Bhutan. Uh, I have a list. A I have a list of homework now. I've got to watch American Utopia. I'm gonna go pull some some music from the Damned, and then I've got to go pull this Martin and Me album. Like I've got homework. Is this the episodes I love? Is is whenever I have a term that I've got to go back to look at, which is the gross national happiness model. Like when I learn things, this is this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm after. So I appreciate you uh, for joining me tonight giving me two hours of your time. I know it's incredibly valuable. Um, if you got anything else you want to say before uh, I, I boot you off for a minute, hit my closing. Um, no, I would say you. like, uh, if people want to check it out, you can go to drinking and knowing things.com. You can sign up, start getting the newsletters. If you want to check out SoCal Rum, you can go to 
SoCalRum.com. If you want to see what's going on with Bhutan Wine, ButanWine.com. You know, I'm a very savvy marketer with my right. Opinion. Yeah, keep it straightforward, and and I'll caution people to sometimes you hear the word newsletter, right? And, and you think of a lot of things, what you put out from drinking and knowing things doesn't feel like a newsletter, right? Like I've signed up for a lot of marketing newsletters. This is not one of those. This is a, a different, uh, a different type of connection. So I'd encourage anyone absolutely sign up for it. Take the advice, buy a few bottles. Um, I'll be able to tell you in a week or two, whether I've connected with any of these four bottles that I've picked up, they won't be the only ones. We'll get some more. We'll, we'll work our way through um, probably at least a dozen of the wines that are in the book to begin with. So appreciate it. Like I said, um, this is super fun. It usually I try to, I try to target, you know, 30 or 45 minutes worth of content and the conversation runs as long as it does. Um, the ones that run beyond an hour and a half, that's just a sign that things are going well because people don't stick around for an hour for two hours to talk about, you know, nothing. So no, it's been great, man. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, I tell you what, if I if I get down to Kentucky, I'm going to come over and we'll just have some have some bourbon and, and fuck yeah, off. I've, I've got I've got a few things for you. We'll, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll bring out whatever you want. That's that's what I always tell anybody. Like if somebody comes over to the house and they want to drink some whiskey, like whatever there is, it, there's yeah. no no things are off limits because it's meant to be drank together. That's what its, yeah. what its purpose is. Well, I appreciate you letting me. Uh, just run my mouth for a couple of hours. So. Hey, no, that's, that's what we're here for. So thank, thank you so much for, for being here. Right on. All right. So that was super fun folks. Um, thanks for tuning in for this offering from the embellished podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you have to be consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media on Twitter or Instagram using Embellish Pod. Uh, give me a follow and you can see what's going on there. I can also be found at www.embellishpod.com. All of my links, account, contact details, so forth and so on. Uh, I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers and thanks for hanging out, listening to what we have to say. Um, you know, it's it was these are the these are the episodes that I am absolutely here for. So I appreciate everybody for hanging out.